Y aquí estamos, señoras y señores, por primera vez. Este es uno de los momentos más anhelados, porque por fin estoy con mi admiradísimo Tucker Gadrich, probablemente el mayor experto del mundo en un área de la salud que me parece súper importante, de la que hemos hablado mucho y seguiremos hablando, porque es ese gran enemigo que se esconde en la cocina, en el supermercado, en todas partes. Y ya te he hablado de esto. Y te lo están vendiendo como algo ultra saludable. Pero no lo es. Desde luego nuestro experto no opina así. Y tiene muchísimo que ofrecernos a este respecto. Y es nuestro querido Tucker Goodrich. Así que bienvenido. Very welcome. It's an honor and a pleasure. And how are you today, Tucker? It's Sunday. I'm great, Mario. Thank you so much for having me on. I wish I could talk in Spanish, but my high school Spanish has largely withered away over, through lack of use. Um, but I'm really honored to be addressing your audience. Thank you very much for having we'll me test on. It. We'll test it. At oh, the Lord. End. <laughs> uh, let's see. Let's see. And anyway, anyway, now, now, nowadays is it's magical with the artificial intelligence. We have tools which are amazing because before I, I wouldn't invite people who spoke other languages. But now I'm going to try how they subtitle it very quickly because before it wasn't efficient. But, but now I think things are going to change. But this is not our subject. So, Tucker, first question. Omega-6, why are they so healthy? <laughs> because the marketing department needs them to be. Great. So, obviously, your story. I, I think I know your story by, by heart by now because I've been following your, your podcasts. Your story tells otherwise. And can you tell us your story? Yeah, so to be concise about it, I was in uh, my 30s and thought I was largely healthy and thought that because I was eating largely according to the dietary guidelines that I was probably going to follow my grandparents and live, you know, a long life and be healthy into my 80s and 90s. And I was looking forward to that. I remember as a kid chasing my, at the time, 84-year-old grandfather through the woods of Maine, and all of his grandkids were yelling, Grampy, slow down, we can't keep up with you. <laughs> and I was kind of looking forward to that being my future. And then I started getting sick and had multiple visits to the hospital for a variety of what seemed to be unrelated reasons. And I remember very clearly one day looking in the mirror in my bathroom and thinking to myself, wow, man, you're looking old and you're not going to age well. Um, I wound up having to have surgery where part of my colon was removed because of uh, acute diverticulitis, which is a perforation in the colon and the bowel, um, causing the contents of the bowel to leak out into your intestines, which as everybody can imagine is not a good thing. Um, and so I was kind of, you know, coming to the conclusion that I wasn't going to be able to keep up with my grandparents in their healthy old age. Um, and then through largely dumb luck, one day I was in the I had discovered uh, 
nutrition research and discovered that a condition that I thought was genetic was entirely caused by diet, which was poor dental health. I had, you know, many cavities as a kid and had eight teeth pulled because my jaw wasn't big enough and discovered that that was entirely the result of poor diet. And so that got me interested, you know, that was really a eye-opening moment and got me because interested. You started in questioning then. It started questioning and started making me realize that this could have more of an impact than I ever thought it could. So one day I was down um, in the cafeteria at work and I got to the end of the salad bar and looked at all these squeeze bottles of salad dressing and said to myself, those have got to be, to be in this cafeteria, those have got to be the cheapest oils known to man. What happens if I stop eating them? And two days later, the condition that had led to my colon resection disappeared for the first time in 16 years. Two days. And two days. Two days. Versus 16 and, years. Yes. And after that, that absolutely blew my mind. And after that, everything started getting better. My weight dropped off. Um, two months later, I put my pants on one morning to go to work and I buckled my buckle to the hole that I always used and I let go and they dropped to the floor. <laughs> and I realized I was going to have to take my wardrobe to the tailor because it didn't fit anymore. And I've like been maybe I'm I'm transforming into a superhero or maybe this is just working. One one of those two things. What yeah, well, I mean, there are definite there are times when it definitely feels like it's miraculous and we'll get into some of those instances. But, you know, people at work started coming up to me and saying because they'd all, you know, a number of the times when I had to go to the hospital, it was from the office. So everybody knew about my health problems. Um, and people started coming up to me because all of a sudden I started looking 15 years younger and healthier and thinner. And everybody wanted to know what I was doing. Um, and I discovered, you know, that there was, this could have a real impact on people. I mean, one of my colleagues had been diabetic for 30 years. He was in his late fifties at that point and had been sick and overweight his entire life. And I was able to help him get back down to the weight he graduated from high school at wow. and put wow. his diabetes not entirely into remission, but largely into remission and, you know, had that same effect on a number of other colleagues just by chatting with people in the office. And, you know, I started realizing that this was a message that had a lot of impact and that wasn't reflected in what one learned from one's doctors. I wound up firing my doctor because I cured all of my health problems. He didn't. Um, so there wasn't Plus, I was I had no more health problems to see him about. So, you know, there was no point in spending the large amount of money that I was paying for a access to a premium healthcare physician here in the United States. So, you know, it entirely transformed my life and it's had a huge impact on my family and on a lot of the people I've been able to interact with over the years, including my uh, my now wife um who we will talk about her health transformation as well because she's also benefited from all your discoveries more than i have ironically um 
well, well that's that we'll keep that in mystery so that we, we'll leave it for later on when when you find that it's the moment uh, so everything happened in that moment of inspiration where you know you you said this must be garbage let's what happens if we stop eating it in two days you see this transformation can i ask how old are you by the way right now it's not very polite, i'm 55 wow you look great you look great well thank you congratulations uh, and you when look I better than that... when you were in your 30s right well yeah i hope so i mean unfortunately aging continues but when i was in i was 42 when i did that and you know several months later i was uh carded asked for id because by a gay bartender who thought i was under 21. <laughs> i took that as the huge compliment i think that's that a huge compliment that's a huge so i was compliment. like okay this kind of works i'm happy with this okay so in that moment of inspiration uh, you start aging like like good wine okay you 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 change the way we we age and when do you make that omega uh, omega 6 connection like when do you say this is linoleic acid related because at the beginning it was like it sounds to me that it was something more intuitive like oh this this must be garbage I, i've tried everything and then you try this and then when do you start like really researching and and becoming the most probably the the biggest expert in the world about omega-6 fatty acids well i made the change in the first place because of the research that i'd read about the negative effects omega-6 fats could help but could have uh so that was what inspired me in the first place okay. and in that specific instance it was related to skin cancer um i'm blonde and blue-eyed i go out in the sun and i roast um you know used to be in like 45 minutes so thinking that i could do something that would help that was kind of you know a motivation because skin cancer you know if you're blonde and blue-eyed skin cancer is always something you're concerned with um my father had had skin cancer and you know so and my mother also as a matter of fact um so that was kind of the motivation what i couldn't find out was any good explanation of why I saw the effects that I did, right? And it wasn't just weight loss or my irritable bowel condition resolving in a couple of days. It was, I, you know, I was standard kind of had put on a pound a year since I was in my 20s. So I was about 20 pounds overweight. I um, had tried going on a low carbohydrate diet and had never been able to stick to it because of the carbohydrate cravings. And one of the most interesting things that happened to me immediately was I forgot to eat carbohydrates for a week. And because of that, I and discovered you able before and I weren't, I wasn't able, I wasn't able to get over the cravings for them. And then I just sort of forgot. I had no interest. And at the end of the you, week, you were trying to follow what what I would call a supermarket keto diet, maybe? I wasn't trying keto to be. Keto diet, on a, but with, with a, all kind of fats. And, yes. And yes. that didn't work. Yes. And it didn't work. I couldn't do it. And 
Um, so this time around, I didn't try to do it. I just didn't eat them. And then at the end of the week, I had a went back down to that cafeteria and I had a sandwich on whole wheat bread and I had a horrible reaction to it. And I discovered that I also am incredibly gluten intolerant. One of the times I was hospitalized when I was 38 years old, it was because they thought I had a stroke and I had gone partially blind and was unable to talk. Um, and you know, one of my employees, uh, had been a, paramedic and he threw me into his car and took me to the local stroke ward where I spent the next four days and you know I that was pretty that was a pretty scary moment and I've discovered since that that was largely because of my gluten sensitivity so you know that is another side benefit of avoiding the omega-6 oils was that I discovered that I have this inc incredible gluten sensitivity and through a lot of trial and error um, discovered which types of symptoms that I was experiencing were caused by which of the two foods that were causing my health issues. Um, you know, and unfortunately spicy food also gives me the business, but that's not too surprising. Cause I mean, you know, peppers, nice. although we all love them, you know, we do make a bioweapon pepper spray out of it. So it shouldn't be too surprising that it's bad for, <laughs> that it irritates some people. <laughs> You know, there's no food I love more than spicy foods. I mean, they make my mouth water immediately, but my intestines do not thank me later on. But I'm thinking that maybe you're very lucky because of that. Do you do you consider yourself lucky because you had this because you were that sensitive, you know, and and because you were so scary, so so scared because fear can be a very at least for me in many instances of my own life. It's been a huge motivator. So what, oh, yeah. what, yes. what role being, did it play in your life, fear? And, and what do you think would, maybe you wouldn't be uh, as healthy as you are right now if, if you weren't so sensitive also? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And it's, per, it's a little perverse, I guess. But the fact that I'm afraid of eating these foods does make it far easier to avoid them. And mm. lots of people... <clears throat> when they try and eat a healthier diet, they, you know, observe that it's difficult in social situations. And I've certainly had people, including physicians, tell me that what I'm doing is unnecessary and that there's no evidence for it. And, you know, especially with physicians, when I go through my health history, they almost always turn around and say, okay, well, then you should definitely keep doing what you're doing. Um, you know, but even other other folks, especially, you know, I mean, especially the neurological issues that I have with response to wheat and then the, you know, I mean, my bowel issues come back after a single meal where I eat seed oils, right? Like so this. it's really easy for me to stick to the straight and narrow because of that. Whereas Isn't if I were a guy, you know, and I tell people who have you know, I tell people about the wheat issue is that, you know, most of the population doesn't seem to have any problem with eating wheat. And even people who, like, I know a couple of people who have celiac disease in first generation relatives, which means they're almost certainly to have the genetic pattern and this predisposition to wheat toxicity that is the cause of celiac disease. 
but they don't have any symptoms. And so it's really hard for them to say, okay, I'm going to alter my life by not eating this stuff. And I know exactly what they're going through because I remember the panic attack I had. I, I, I called myself Mr. Whole Wheat to my daughters because I was such a big advocate of, you know, eating whole wheat and the dietary guidelines tell us it's healthy and, the, you know, the scientists must know what they're talking about. And then I discovered that it's literally a poison for me. So, you know, it makes and it easy to do. But... shooting yourself with that during a lot of, of the years. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, it was, you know, the cause of at least clear cause of at least three of my hospitalizations so wow. um yep. yeah it definitely makes it easier but i think when a lot of people realize you know i mean the gluten thing i did a lot of reading into into wheat and gluten and i came to the conclusion that while for certain people whether or not they have celiac disease you know there's a group of people who are affected by wheat a lot more significantly than other people are. I'm one of those people. For me, I have to avoid it, right? I don't know that that's true for everybody. Now, for omega-6 fats, that not only affects all people, but it affects all species from what we know. So this is a fundamental issue of health for, you know, me, you, for Americans, for people around the world, for dogs and cats and, you know, for bacteria. <laughs> and roundworms you know this is a fundamental health issue so you know the wheat story is interesting but you know it affects a narrower group of people in my opinion and also people are more aware society is more aware whereas right. with the linoleic acid is more like you compare it to smoking a lot yes and you say that we are not evolutionarily adapted to to be warned against it like for instance you you talk a lot about the uh, fish if you if fish goes rancid we are adapted because we were eating fish so we had to detect like this if uh, this omega-3 go rancid but because we were not at least this is what 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 you think we were not eating so much omega-6 we are not we didn't develop this adaptation to to feel when omega-6 goes rancid so this is why this is such a silent killer and also because it yes. becomes rancid inside the body as you say which is a little bit confusing to me because sometimes you talk so bad i you, you say that this is so bad that i get confused and and i don't know which form is worse because usually i would think okay the trans fats are worse this is what i would think but you you smile you're smiling now and also think yeah when you cook it because they get oxidized very quickly but then you say no but you know it almost doesn't matter because they get oxidized in inside your body just as easily so can you clarify a little bit this confusion i have yeah so let's so you you're bringing up a lot of kind of fundamental issues with that that was a really good intro to the topic right so fats are a normal part of our diet right this demonization of fat that we've seen over the last many decades is unfounded we actually have a special digestive pathway 
for fat that is preferred over everything else that we eat, right? So all, all except for fat, all foods that we eat go to the liver, where the liver processes toxins and transforms toxic foods into less toxic foods, right? That's why one of the reasons why alcohol can cause liver disease is because the liver is trying to detoxify it. Same thing with sugar and fructose. Um, fats are different. Fats, fats bypass it. Fats bypass the liver. They go through the lymph system and they are dropped directly into your circulation um, so that your body has immediate access to them and can use them for, for energy, for fuel, and to build body components, right? Because all of our cell membranes in our body are made from fats. And, you know, I mean, putting somebody on an extremely low fat diet is actually very unhealthy for them. And we'll get into that, right? But there are different because kinds of fats. You there mentioned are... my, my head is almost exploding because you mentioned okay. the lymph system, which is not many people are familiar with it. Okay. I'm, I'm only familiar a little bit because I was worried about the toxic load in, in our bodies and I know, correct me if I'm wrong, I know that the lymph system plays an important role in detoxifying uh, our body and also with the the defense, the if, with, with, you know, lymphocytes and, and uh, white uh, cells. White blood cells. White blood cells, excuse me. So, and, and I know it's like a circulatory system but without a heart. So the way you activate it is by movement. Am I right? Right. So the like, lymph So the, the more exercise you are the, the more exercise you make, the more you activate your lymphatic system. Am I right? So right. when you say that fat bypass bypasses the liver and goes directly to your uh, lymph system, lymphatic system, I'm you know I'm I'm really now shocked. So how okay, does it so work and, and why and which role does it play? Has anything to do with this detoxifying role that also probably plays the lymphatic system? Am I wrong in something? Can you help us with this? No, that's excellent. So the lymph system is almost a, we all know that we have a circulatory system that carries blood around our bodies, right? We have a parallel system called the lymph system that also helps things move all throughout our bodies but it's primarily immune function, right? Immune. Lymphocytes, a type of white blood cell, are what our body uses to defend against pathogens, you know, bacteria and viruses, and also in repair, right? So if you, we've all probably experienced, you know, we get a cut and we see blood come out. And then as it starts to heal, we see, you know, I mean, to get too graphic here, but if you pick a scab off, you may see a clear fluid coming out right? That's coming out from your lymph system. And that is carrying white blood cells that your body uses to repair itself. That's so the same white. process. Mm. Hmm? That, that's why it's white. Right. Or clear or clear. I mean, the white or blood cells yellow, are, yellow, know, white, yellowish, ex yellowish. Exactly. Exactly. So now if you, um, push, how do you say it in English? We call it push in Spanish. Pus. Pus. Okay. Pus. P -U -S. Yes. Okay. Okay. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, same word in English. Um, so it's basically a parallel circulatory system. And when you eat, and I'm not going to get into too much speculation, but it is an interesting notion that, you know, we 
build our body's membranes from fat. And then we use this lymph system to, you know, carry fat into the body after you eat it, you know, this preferential pathway, um, bypassing the liver. Um, but do, it's, do we you know, know which kind of fat is it saturated fat? Is it polyunsaturated fat? Omega all fat? longer chain fats go through the lymph system, short chain fats, like those you get in coconut oil go to the liver. Um, I don't know why that is. Um, it's one of the reasons why people who eat coconut oil may, some people feel like it's raising their body temperature. And the reason is that much like sugar, short chain fats are preferentially oxidized by the body. The body doesn't have any way to store them. So it just, you know, uses them as a preferential fuel, fuel source. Um, coconut oil is short, great. Short chain uh, for the layman is saturated, right? Mostly saturated fat, mostly. right? Yeah, that's why and coconut oils almost... Also, when you say mostly, what else right. can be short chain? Hmm? When you say mostly saturated, when you say short chain fatty acids are mostly saturated fats, is is there anything else they can be? In our in our foods, yes, they're mostly saturated fats. I mean, the biggest, the two biggest sources of short chain saturated fats in the human diet are coconut oil and breast milk. <laughs> okay. And since most of us aren't consuming must much breast milk for most of our lives, um, that pretty much leaves coconut oil. And they, they're thought to have lots of beneficial qualities. I mean, people have used uh, the short chain fats in coconut oil as a treatment for Alzheimer's disease, um, which is kind of a whole nother topic that we'll not get into. But you know, they they're metabolized more like everything else. So the fats that are um, passed through the lymph system are the fats that make up the vast majority of the fats that we consume, whether they're saturated, monounsaturated, or polyunsaturated, right? So we have this distinction between saturated fats and unsaturated fats. Um, saturated fats are hard fats. You know, uh, that's why a candle is hard or a bar of soap is hard because it's got um, saturated fats that have a full complement of hydrogen atoms around the carbons. A fat is like a ladder with carbon in the middle and hydrogen on the side, right? And if you take a couple of those hydrogen atoms out of there, and this is as much chemistry as we're going to do today, I hope. Thanks. Um, <laughs> Thanks. It creates a, the attachment to the hydrogen attaches to the carbon and it makes the fat bend. And it also makes the fat very susceptible to oxidation at that point, right? So the so more missing hydrogen, okay, the less saturated it is, right. the, the more fragile it becomes. Exactly. So the more unsaturated, the less hydrogen atoms it has, the more um, susceptible it becomes to oxidation. Oxidation. Right? And this is why we hydrogenate fats, right? When you hydrogenate a fat, you are adding hydrogen atoms to make them more saturated, which makes them more stable. If you partially hydrogenate them, this is where we start getting into these synthetic trans fats. And those can be problematic because those are fats that the body is not exposed to naturally, right? They're synthetic. 
Some of the healthiest fats we know of are actually trans fats in, for instance, um, dairy foods. But they are things that we have evolved eating. The synthetic ones are the problems. Um, so, but when you're making... So they are healthy trans fats? In their... Natural trans fats are healthy. Synthetic okay. trans fats. And they only take place in dairy? Dairy and in your body. Your body actually, you know, interestingly enough, when your body is, in order to take advantage of fats for fuel, your body converts them into trans fats and then sends them into the mitochondria, right? Okay. So there are, you know, and this, I don't want to get on too much of a side note here on uh, the whole trans fat topic. The synthetic ones are clearly a bad idea to eat. The natural ones are healthy. Unfortunately, the American dietary guidelines doesn't make that distinction and uses the fact that, for instance, dairy fats have trans fats to lump synthetic and natural trans fats together and claim that dairy is bad, which it's not, right? So the rationale for that argument is a bit misleading and inaccurate. Um, so anyway, you, let's... You must let's... be very, very happy with the guidelines, with, with, the, <laughs> with, with the, you know, the official guidelines because it's... Well, I was a little shocked, you know, I mean, when I changed my diet, I remember going in to see my doctor and telling him what I was doing because I was a regular customer. <laughs> I mean, I was going in there for all sorts of things and he had figured out that I was pretty good at diagnosing things <laughs> that if I called him up and I said, hey, doc, I'm having an irregular heart rate, he'd be he learned that I was in fact having an irregular heart rate, even though he wasn't immediately able to detect it. Um, so he learned to take me seriously. And when I went in there and I told him I was essentially turning the food pyramid on its head and was going to be adopting a high fat, low carb diet, he kind of freaked out and he said, you know, Tucker, I think you may be killing yourself. And I said, well, doc, that's why I'm here. I want you to, run the tests that will tell us if I am killing myself. And if I am, then I won't do it. But if I get better, then that's great. And he said, okay, that sounds fair. We'll do that. Um, years later, my father wound up going to this same physician and this was at the end of his life and he was quite sick. And one day I, you know, got to the point where I was looking after my father and I was going to his doctor going on his doctor visits with him. Um, and we went to see this doctor again. And my dad asked the, the doctor, doc, what should I eat? And the doc's answer was, you should listen to your son and do whatever he tells you. He knows what he's talking about. Uh, so you helped your, your father, I guess. It yeah, I helped my father. I mean, he listened well, to you, right? Like, yeah. Um, I mean, that was kind of a funny conversation. <clears throat> you know, just a quick aside here. So the doctor told us that my father's HbA1c um, is a measure that indicates that you're diabetic. And it's, it basically is a measure of the damage done to red blood cells when they're exposed to glucose. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's a longer term because red blood cells last in your body for like three months. It basically tells you 
how high your average blood glucose is. Because if glucose is high, they last less time, right? Well, they get more damage. And yeah, they, they also last less time, but they get more damage. Um, and they measure the damage. They measure the damage. So now okay. the official standard for this is that if you have an HbA1c of 6.5%, you're considered to be diabetic. Mm -hmm. Well, my father had at this point multiple symptoms, multiple side effects of diabetes, including being on the verge of having to have his leg amputated. Um, and the doctor told us that his HbA1c was 6.4%. And he'd never told my father that he was, you know, a whisper away from being diagnosed as diabetic. And it Which blew is my the mind. Same. You know, practically, it's the same, right? It's like... Yeah, exactly. And he had the symptoms of diabetes. So it wasn't like, you know, he was just whistling around and he just dodged a bullet. I mean, he was diabetic and he was having diabetic side effects, you know, including very, very serious ones like heart disease and, you know, being a candidate for a leg amputation. That's pretty serious in my book. Pretty serious, yeah. And so the guess, doctor, very honestly, he said to me, well, I didn't tell your father because we don't have any way to treat it. <laughs> and I said, okay. I said, that's actually fair. You should have told him still. And he, and he said, so what are we going to do about diabetes? And my answer was, oh, doc, diabetes is easy. I'll take care of that. I need you to help me with getting him off his medications. So two months later, my father's HbA1c level was normal. The exact wow. same level as the physicians. Wow. Wow. Which blew the doctor's mind. And my father also was in the middle of losing 40 pounds like that. And wow. also found that his wardrobe no longer fit him <laughs> <laughs> and had to go out and start buying pants that were much, you know, that were much smaller because his big beer belly, you know, at that point, he looked like he was eight months pregnant, uh, just started going away. Um, so yeah, anyway, that's... No, you, you must be very proud. And also, I would like to ask, because there are many people who will have this kind of problem, what what are the main changes uh, you help you helped him do? Um, I guess pretty simple. No I will... seed oils, I guess this is one of them. Yeah. Probably keto also. Right. The two... Uh, no seed oils avoid carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. And that's important because when you have too much seed oils, your body becomes impossible, has difficult processing carbohydrates, and they become much more harmful than they would be. Otherwise, you want to make sure you're getting enough animal protein and animal fats, right? You don't need to be a carnivore, you don't need to be totally on a ketogenic diet. But those four things can have an amazing transformation. That's what I told my wife when we got together, we had gone to high school together, you know, and had stayed in touch over the years. And then we both wound up getting divorced and getting together and we're now married. And when I saw her for the first time since the 1990s, she asked me what I was eating. Um, and I, that's what I told her. It was basically a sentence because at the time she was basically a vegan, a very unhealthy vegan. And I didn't want to get into an argument with her about veganism because she was a friend and we were out to dinner. We, we hadn't seen each other in, you know, 30 odd years. So just want to have a nice time with our other friend that we went to high school with. And 
she called me up in the 90s yeah in the 90s we graduated high school together in 1986 and i think the last time i saw her was the early 90s um that's a very romantic story by the way um i i guess i'm just a romantic kind of guy (laughs) you must be you must be because you always go against the the flow and you have to be very romantic in the broad sense in the true sense of the of the word i yeah i guess i definitely am a bit of a romantic i wouldn't keep doing this stuff in in spain we have don quixote you know who don quixote is yes vegetable oils are my windmill you know they were he was he was fighting the the windmills. Like yes, he he thought they were giants, so he was like really really passionate, you know. And this is what yes. we think of when when we think about romantic, like real romantic. It's like a person who is like almost it takes you to heroic roads, but also very emotionally. It must be like a roller coaster because you're describing. You've been in contact with many episodes of iatro- iatrogenia. How do you say it in English? Iatrogenics? Iatrogenic, yes. Physician caused diseases. Absolutely. Because, you know, with you, with your family, with your loved ones, it must be for you. You must almost take it now like a joke because otherwise it will affect you, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, romance is a double edged sword. It can definitely. I mean, Don Quixote was a romantic hero, but he was also deluded. Yeah, um yeah. No, I, so one one needs to make sure that one's romantic inclinations are not leaving one tilting at windmills what what do you do to keep them in check i this is a little bit your, your romantic inclinations in in this way i i know this is a little bit off the topic but no this is this is at the absolute core of the topic and thank you for bringing it. this up because it's very 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 important to understand this right and it's when I started getting into this diet stuff, and I'd never had any interest in this, I didn't study nutrition, I didn't, you know, it wasn't until I realized that it was having a benefit on me that I started getting to me, that I started getting interested in it. Um, and a number of the folks that I learned a lot from in this community were what I would call a little too romantic and believed in things like acupuncture or Chinese medicine that are interesting, but I don't think have the scientific basis that I believe should be the foundation of medicine, right? Um, You have to be able to prove that things work and prove that things are effective. So what keeps me on the non-diluted side of romance, at least I hope, is my forcing myself to be objective and forcing myself to stick with strict protocols of science right evaluating science and i mean i was you know at the time i was having all these illnesses i was an engineer um i was the chief technology officer for a large new york city hedge fund and what that meant was i basically had a gun to my head all the time the things i was responsible for a majority of the company's budget because technology was such a big part of our business and if anything broke, the gun was at my head. I had to fix it or the company could go out of business. Right. So, I mean, that was a lot of pressure. And I managed that by being rigorously scientific in evaluating what things were happening and what things that we could do. Right. So when I came upon this diet realm, 
I just applied the same tool set that I was already using to manage this company's technology infrastructure, right? Okay, something's working. How, you know, what changed? I mean, that's the biggest question that you have to ask yourself when you're trying to evaluate why something isn't working. Did it work correctly before? And if it changed, if, you know, what changed? What changed in the environment? It's almost always that's what is happening, right? Having a mechanical defect in a complicated system like a technology system, which is running a lot of software, usually it's either something that's coming into the system changed or something in the software changed, right? There were only a handful of times I can think of where we actually had hardware failures that caused us to have issues in the business, right? It was generally input problems or the software that we were running changing, right? And that's very analogous to this whole seed oil conversation, right? Because one of the things that we have to understand in order to understand this whole disease process is that these chronic diseases weren't always with us in the rates that they are with us today, right? 50% of people in industrial countries now die of heart disease. That wasn't always true. Even at the beginning of cardiology in the early part of the 20th century, heart disease was rare, right? One of the most famous American cardiologists, he's called uh, Paul Dudley White. He's called the father of American cardiology. He was one of the fellows who founded the American Heart Association. And he talked throughout his career about how much more common heart disease was becoming from when he was a student to when he was the you know grand old man of American cardiology. And when people would talk to him about things that they needed to do to make heart disease less likely, like increasing their consumption of seed oils, his response was, but wait, when I was in medical school, nobody ate seed oils and nobody had heart disease. So why are you telling me that eating more seed oils is going to be the cure to heart disease when back Back when nobody had it, we were all eating animal fats and butter and nobody thought about this, right? There were no cardiologists. Can there was I no play need for cardiologists. Devil's advocate a little bit. Huh? Can I play devil's advocate? Right. Right. So you you always have to play the devil's advocate can, and you have I, to do it I, against yourself I, most vehemently, right? Whenever can, can I do it? Can I do it now, Tucker? Yeah. Can we rule out that this has nothing to do with in the past an inability to diagnose better uh, problems with like maybe nowadays uh, I think if I play devil's, uh, devil's advocate I would say yeah but maybe now it's very easy to diagnose something related with heart disease and before it wasn't can we that can, can we rule out that the physicians who started noticing heart disease starting were very aware of that issue. They and were. They, 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 they were very, very able aware. to diagnose it if, if they found it. Like, right. It's not that One of the most, less able to diagnose it. Right. One of the most interesting papers that I came across that was written in the middle of the 20th century mm -hmm. was a cardiologist talking about what he was seeing in his practice. And what he was seeing was the children of his patients were getting heart disease 20 years younger than 
their parents mm. and were dying from it, right? There's lots of ways. That's a very good answer. That's a very good answer to my question. Lots, and we've seen this in other countries. We saw this in Japan, in same Okinawa. Same doctor, different people, and different generations, but, you know, so it's the same doctor diagnosing their children and not their parents. So this is the best answer to to this right. objection. And, you know, you have to understand heart heart attacks, heart attacks don't always kill you, obviously, right? But they do leave permanent scarring on the heart that never heals. Mm -hmm. Okay. So one of the most amazing studies looking at this in the, it was published in 1964, 1965. And since scarring on heart tissue is a surefire indicator of a heart attack, they looked at hearts in autopsy across different countries. Because what they were rule, trying to rule out, what they were trying to determine is heart disease genetic, or is it the result of the environment? So they looked at Americans who were lucky us leading the world in heart disease. And then they looked at immigrant groups in America. They looked at Africans, Chinese, Japanese, and Koreans. The fellow who did this study was a Korean American doctor, right? And they did autopsies in the United States of those ethnic groups. And then they went back to their native countries and they did autopsies of those groups to discover what the rate of myocardial of heart attack, myo, myocardial infarction, MI, was because you can tell it at a heart attack, right? Even if you die of, you know, you get hit by a truck walking across the street, they're going to be able to look at your heart in autopsy and say, oh, at some point this fellow had a heart attack, right? So what they discovered was the rate in white Americans was... 20 middle like 20 percent so 20 odd percent of americans had heart attacks right 18 percent of japanese americans had had heart attacks before they died 12 percent of african americans had had heart attacks before they died and then they went back and they looked at japanese in japan and the rate Which was three percent in tokyo and around one percent in the rest of the country the overall rate was you know, in the low one, in the low single digits compared to 18% in the United States. Then they looked at versus 1% same ethnicity. So same genes. So genetics, same genes. And the Japanese are a great a example of that because they hadn't been in the United States for very long. Right. Unlike say African-Americans who had been here since the, you know, 17, 18 hundreds, um, so there had been a lot of intermixture between African-Americans and Americans. Then they went back to Africa hmm. and they looked at heart attacks in, I think it was Nigeria and Uganda. And I think it was in Nigeria. They did 4,500 autopsies. And I mean, they were very thorough about it. They brought a lot of the hearts back to the United States so they could make sure that the autopsies were being done in the same way, you know, that there wasn't some bias as you brought up, that it wasn't just like a lack fair, of being able to wall, diagnose. You no, know, they are not able because they're, no, they brought them to the USA and yes. they follow the same, with the same techniques, right? Yes, so they wanted, they were, they were all very aware of the issue that you raised and they wanted to make sure that they were controlling for it because they understood that there were differences in practice in different countries and 
you know, in the 45, practice of medicine. 45,000? 4,500 autopsies. Okay. 4,500, okay, okay. Now, remember, the rate of African-Americans at that point was 12%. Hmm. The 12%. rate of heart attacks in Nigeria? the Africans was zero. Zero? They like, found one person zero. with evidence of a heart attack, which rounds out to zero. Okay, zero dots, whatever. Okay, very, very, so, very tiny, tiny, tiny. Yes. Um, That's amazing. So we knew in the 1960s that heart disease can be very rare, right? Can be very rare, that it doesn't have to be as common as we see it in the industrial countries. And there are lots of papers. I found a analysis looking at all these different populations who had hugely variant rates of heart disease around the world. I mean, this is a well-known phenomenon, although you will never hear it from a cardiologist nowadays, right? But we are not doomed to high rates of heart disease. It is not a natural human phenomenon. So my engineering mind, says to me what changed <laughs> that's that's the question because how can you single out this factor because one you know if if you want to play again a uh, devil's advocate you will say yes but we don't know i we know for sure that you take the same japanese person you you take them to the usa and this lifestyle it's really really making him harm Right. And with the African, even more, even more so. But Many how do you know? How do you know it's seed oils and not maybe sugar and other factors like processed food and radiation? I don't know. There, like, there are many factors. What makes you so convinced that the seed oils play a huge role in that percentage of? So let's go through the cardiovascular research, right? This is the research that's done by organizations like the American Heart Association and uh, other medical organizations, right? Nothing I'm going to describe to you is anything other than the research that doctors and scientists have done to try and figure out what to do about heart disease, right? So yes, in they don't read it the same way you read it. They don't interpret it the same way you do. Oh, they do. Do they? They're just not honest about it, but we'll get into that. Oh, okay. That's a different subject. Okay. Um, in the 1950s, a researcher named Ansel Keys did a lot of, ex came up with this idea that saturated fat causes heart disease. What, what made him think that? He thought that cholesterol, so if you go look at a atherosclerotic plaque, Right. So a heart attack is typically caused by you get this atherosclerotic plaque, which is basically like a pus filled cyst in your artery. This can burst when it bursts. Parts of it go up into your heart and block the blood flow to your heart. That's one of the major causes of a heart attack. Okay, so. You know, very reasonable approach that he took, he looked in these things and what you find in, an, in a plaque is a lot of cholesterol, even cholesterol crystals, right? Now your body, cholesterol is this molecule that is a natural part of our body. It's essential for health. Um, a lot of your membranes are made out of cholesterol. 
And, you know, so it's a perfectly normal part of your body. B vitamin, vitamin D, right? Like, uh, yes, vitamin D is made from cholesterol. Steroid hormones like testosterone and estrogen are made from cholesterol, right? So it's just, it's, it's a normal part of your body. It's supposed to be there. But they found that it was built up in these plaques, which were causing heart attacks and causing people to die. And it's important to remember the important the problem with heart disease is the dying part, right? If you have atherosclerosis in your veins and it never has any effect on you and you live to 100 years old, who cares? It's the dying part early that's the problem. And I say that and people laugh, but I mean, you know, some of these research studies are ridiculous because they're like, oh, well, we're not going to worry about how long you live. We're just going to worry about these little symptoms that only a cardiologist would care about. I care about the death part. Um, and I think most of your listeners probably are on the same page with me there, right? So at any rate, so here we are in the 1950s. You, Ansel do you Keys. mean, just, just to make sure we follow you, do you mean like maybe in a study they focus on on whether some biomarkers change or something, but maybe they, they stop the study in five years, let's say, and they don't follow what happens afterwards. Oh, even... Is, is that what you mean? And, and then maybe those people who were following one diet and they say it's healthy because they, it changes some biomarkers, but if they end up with cancer or dying from any other cause, they don't, they don't take it into account. Is that what you mean? Yeah, and we'll go we'll go through that. It's actually worse than what you're describing. Even right? worse. So let's say your doctor came to you and he said, Mario, we have this treatment, we did a study, and it turns your, you know, and it does this thing to you that we think is going to be good for your heart disease. Mm -hmm. And you say, Well, that's great, doc. So it'll make me live longer. And he says, Oh no, 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 no. It's not going to make you live longer. In fact, you'll probably die sooner. But this marker that we care about will get better in the interim. And then you'll die sooner, right? What would you tell them? But I don't know why. I mean, maybe the marker is also not a good marker. Or maybe it's not. Be, I mean, they should take into account the real markers, you know, because it, it should fit. It should fit. If, 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 I, you, take, the, if you use the good tools, the right tools, Right. Then but you I mean, should tell whether this person is more likely to die or not. I mean, th that must mean that the markers are also biased, right? Are they? Yes. Obviously, if that's the case, you're looking at a bad marker, right? And okay. the marker that most of us care about the most is the death marker. <laughs> yeah, sure. Right? Yeah. So anyway, so along, along comes this researcher, Ansel Keys, who was quite famous in the United States. He, among other things invented the K-ration, which was the food that the American military used in World War II, right? K for keys. So very, very famous American scientist. Um, and he did a bunch of experiments where he looked at cholesterol in the blood, right? And he noticed cholesterol in the blood is carried around in these little particles called, that we now call LDL mostly. And what he noticed that is if you fed somebody saturated fat, the cholesterol levels went up. And if you fed somebody polyunsaturated fat, the cholesterol levels went down. Okay. Now, since they thought that cholesterol was causing heart disease because plaques were full of cholesterol, they figured, hey, if we give people, if we tell people to change their diets to lower their cholesterol, 
that should help them to live longer, right? Two problems with this, as Paul Dudley White, the father of American cardiology pointed out, but we've been eating more and more of these vegetable oils since the early part of the 20th century when we didn't have any heart disease. And how is that gonna make things better, right? So in 1961, Ansel Keys and the American Heart Association came out and told the entire country and thereby the entire world that people should eat more polyunsaturated fats because it will lower your blood cholesterol and the hope. So this is the important thing to understand. They didn't have any evidence beyond that marker, right? They are correct most of the time, not always, but most of the time eating more polyunsaturated fats will lower your blood cholesterol and your LDL, right? But what they hadn't done was an experiment to find out if that would make you live longer, okay? So that was 1961. In 1965, a study called the Rose Corn Oil Trial was done, and they looked specifically at death <laughs> and corn oil consumption. And what they found was that, yes, corn oil lowered your blood cholesterol, but people who ate more corn oil had more heart disease and died sooner. And their conclusion was that corn oil is not an appropriate treatment for heart disease because it causes more of it. <laughs> okay. So we're literally, I mean, I said that and everybody said, oh, you're joking, right? No physician would ever say do this because it changes this marker, even though it makes you die earlier. But that is exactly what the American Heart Association was in the position of doing at that point, right? So then there were a couple of other studies that came out that showed the same thing, unfortunately. One famous study that was actually quoted by the American Heart Association in their recommendation, although the conclusions hadn't come out at the point when they made the recommendation, found that eating seed oils was actually worse for your heart health than smoking, which is pretty astonishing. Um, so by the end of the 1960s, the, you know, a number of these studies had come out showing that eating more polyunsaturated fats was bad for heart health. So the American Heart Association and Ansel Keys and the entire American medical infrastructure decided to do a national diet heart study to show this benefit. And what they found was that what we already knew, that it lowers your cholesterol, right? But they decided it was too big of a study and it was too hard to do. Ansel Keys continued his part of the study, which was called the Minnesota Coronary Survey and the Minnesota Coronary Experiment. And he wanted to show that this worked. This was his life work at this point, right? So he and another doctor, Ivan France, took hospital patients in Minnesota and they changed their diet and they went to great lengths to make sure that nobody could tell that they were changing the diet, right? Because you don't want, you know, I mean, this is, this is good scientific practice, right? You don't, there's placebo effects. So one of the ways so. to get around the placebo effect is that you don't know what the pill has, right? Yes. That's hard to do with dinner. <laughs> and in fact, in Minnesota, it was illegal to sell butter in any, it was illegal to serve butter in anything other than a square patty, right? So if you were served margarine 
at the dinner table, it had to be in a triangular patty, right? Really? And the butter was in a square patty by law in Minnesota. Well, Ivan France, this doc, famous doctor, he actually got the Minnesota government to change the law so that he could always give his the people in this study a rectangular patty and they wouldn't know if it was butter or margarine. Okay. Um, so they went to amazing lengths to make sure that this was as thorough as possible. And to this day, this is the biggest study that's ever been done in humans to look at what effect um, polyunsaturated fats has in heart disease. How and guess what they found? Study? How, hmm? what's, what's the name of that study? The Minnesota Coronary the, Experiment. The Minnesota Coronary Experiment. Okay. So what did they find? Well, unfortunately they found that the people who got more polyunsaturated fats were more likely to die. And what's worse is they found that the people who best responded to having their cholesterol lowered were the most likely to die. So what did they do? They finished their study early 1970s. They hit it. They hit it, really? They hit it. Ansel Keys, the that's two principal investors. That's that's beg like your pardon. Really, that's worse than cherry picking. That's like really real fraud. Like it's it's almost criminal. What you're saying, right? They didn't release the results until nine until 16 years later, and by that point, most people had forgotten about this study. Most people had forgotten about the National Diet Heart Study, right? And they came out and they kind of poo-pooed about what had actually happened. So years later, a researcher at the National Institutes of Health, Christopher Ramsden, who for reasons we won't go into right now, had gotten into interested in this topic of omega-6 and health um, with a couple of other researchers who were similarly interested, decided to go back and look at all the studies that had given people various types of poly polyunsaturated fats and wanted to figure out what the actual effect was. And he went back and reanalyzed the Minnesota coronary experiment, right? He went to the son of Ivan France, who is a cardiologist at the Mayo Clinic, right? So the son is himself a doctor. And the son said, oh, Dad had all these boxes of papers from that study in the basement. Dad is dead. You know, we haven't cleaned out the house yet, but we will go with you and dig up all of this paperwork and figure out what happened in the study. And what they found was that they knew that the increased intake of polyunsaturated fats caused higher rates of death and cardiovascular disease. One, the student at the university had written his master's thesis looking at this, right? What year, so they, what, what year did they uncover all this? 2016. That's very recent. That's very recent. That's very recent. Yes. So for years, the American Heart Association and all the cardiologists have been telling us that polyunsaturated fats are good for your heart. And as Christopher Ramsden discovered 
in going back and analyzing all of the studies that were actually done and finding evidence that wasn't released in the original studies in the case of this and another study found that in every one of these studies where they lowered saturated fat and increased the polyunsaturated fats from seed oils, more people died. And now you have to understand the Minnesota coronary experiment. This was not like taking people who, let's say, lived in the Amazon jungle and had never seen a bottle of corn oil in their lives, right? These were people in an institution that had been feeding them a lot of polyunsaturated fats already because that was what was in the American diet. And the American Heart Association had come out 10 years earlier and told everybody that was the thing to do. So these people were getting the the group that was getting less polyunsaturated fat was getting 10% of the calories in their diet from polyunsaturated fat, right? Which when is Ram still huge according to, to your ancestral standards, right? Like, it's like which, 10 times as much as we would have evolved to eat. So we right? should eat 1% of our calories. Well, let's, in... let's get, let's get to that. because we're stick, we're going to stick with evidence here, right? Mm -hmm. What's the science show us? Okay. So the intervention group, the group that died more, unfortunately, that was supposed to be healthier, we're getting like 36% of their calories from omega-6 fats. So that's a lot. Right. But even the control group was the getting 10 percent, 10 percent. Right. But I think now, you in, in past podcasts talk about the plateau effect. Like if you go beyond certain threshold, it it stops. Is that exactly like that? Or, or it just means that it doesn't go up as much? Because to me, it's very counterintuitive, you know, like like really a, a real plateau. And, and it's also not... a, a little bit demoralizing because if I'm making an effort to reduce omega-6 and I only get to 5%, which is much better than most people, I maybe I still have the same bad effects. So please tell me that this plateau is not so flat. There do appear to be plateaus. Unfortunately, we don't know exactly what the levels of the plateaus are. But let's talk a little bit about... So... But according to the Minnesota coronary study, it, there's 10 no... Percent, 10 percent is better that, than 36%. <laughs> that's right. So it's, it's not it's not a total plateau because it, right. it, it improves from 30% to 10%. They, they, they improve. They right? improved a teeny little bit, not very much. Just a teeny. Okay. So, the okay. Huge, so 10% huge is probably... Your intuition or your knowledge, where, where should we go to really see the huge improvements? Okay. What Let's go through that, right? Okay. The um, French doctor, uh, Michel Delorgueril, did a famous study called the Lyon Diet Heart Experiment, right? And he changed a bunch of things. One of the things that he changed, and he went on at length in the paper, explaining why he thought reducing the fats from seed oils, the omega-6 fats, would be beneficial, right? This is, to this day, the most successful intervention to improve coronary heart disease using the diet. He took people who had already had a heart attack, so they were already sick, so we knew they were you know, prone to having another heart attack, because the best indicator that you're going to have a heart attack is that you've already had one. Um, 
What, what year again? Excuse me, Tucker. This what year paper came out in 1994. Nine, that's quite old. Okay. So he reduced the omega-6 fats in their diet down to 3.6%. How he can they their... be sure when you say three, excuse me that I interrupt you, sorry for that, but it's something that also is a doubt I, I have. How do you know that you're reducing it below 3%? How do you? How can you measure it? Because when when you say, for instance, that uh, many animals are a big source, like monogastric animals, when they are bad fed, so it's how can you really be sure that you are your intake is below three percent? Generally, what they do in these experiments for short term intake, they're going to measure what's in the blood, right? Okay, and okay. that's a good so, marker to be sure, right? Right. You eat these fats, it gets goes through your lymph system, it gets dumped into your general circulation, and it goes throughout your body, right? And it's incorporated into all the tissues in your body. So you can measure it, and you can measure it just like HbA1c. This medium-term measurement is how much of it is incorporated into blood and blood tissue, right? Because A if longer it goes term... to your tissues, can you still measure it or you cannot? You can, but it's a little harder. I mean... You know, for instance, they would have they stick a needle in to do an adipose biopsy and they pull out some of your fat cells mm -hmm. and then they can measure how much of this of these different fats, whatever fats you eat are in your fat cells. Sounds hard. Did they do that in the lion diet heart study? They did not because it was a shorter term study. Right. That's a longer term change. So in well, any, anyway, in, I'm interrupting you. So in theory, okay. it's like it, one group goes below 3%? That 3.6%. They were at 3.6%, right? And they did other changes, true. But, you know, all of these diet studies, they do multiple changes. So it's not like this was unusual. Um, they saw a 70% decline in the rate of cardiovascular disease, right? Now, to give you a little perspective, Doctors prescribe statins because they give you a 20% decline in some indications of the rates of heart disease, right? So this is three times as effective as a statin. Um, with no side effects, with no bad side effects, because statins have some statins, side effects. Yeah, statins have all statins have side effects. Um, they didn't really get into any side effects in this study. It was primarily a hardy, cardiovascular disease study, but they did look at an mortality and they were, you know, they saw a mortality benefit in the group that tried the diet intervention. So now this was, this is the reason all of us are told, this one study is the reason that all of us are told that a Mediterranean diet is healthy, right? The that was how the lion world. diet hard you, hmm? um, where, where am I lost? <laughs> You say the reason they tell us the Mediterranean diet is healthy is the the lion diet heart study? Yes. I'm not this is the study you. that put the Mediterranean diet on the map as the healthy diet that all physicians now recommend to you. But right? we're talking about omega-6. What, what has, how is it related to the Mediterranean diet? Because I, I mean, besides well, olive oil and, you know, omega-9, Oleica, oleica, yeah, well, now we get 
we get we start getting into the weeds of this study he didn't have Very people weedy. eat more olive oil he had people eat more canola oil canola okay. oil has a somewhat similar fatty acid balance to um olive oil but not exactly the same it also has more omega-3 fats which people thought was the cause of the benefit right but so this study came out in 1994 okay in the 1970s and the 1980s scientists had discovered they were learning more about cholesterol and ldl which we all hear about and they tried an experiment they discovered these two doctors, Brown and Goldstein, um, who won the Nobel Prize for discovering the LDL receptor in cells, right? How cells take LDL out of the bloodstream. And they said, okay, great. Now that we know this, we can show that LDL the causes the first step of heart disease. And the first step of heart disease is when a white blood cell, specific type of white blood cell called a macrophage, takes up so much fat and cholesterol that it becomes what's called a foam cell. And they call it a foam cell because under a microscope, you have a normal little white blood cell. And then when it engorges itself on fat and cholesterol, it becomes this foamy looking blob under the microscope, right? So that's the first step of heart disease, it's thought. So I said, okay, great. We'll take LDL and we'll incubate it in a test tube with macrophages and we will show that through the LDL receptor they turn into foam cells and that will prove for once and for all that LDL cholesterol causes heart disease it didn't work oops right because it, something else was needed something else was needed and what they discovered is that if you modified the LDL that it would cause the macrophages to turn into foam cells but the modification that they used wasn't something that actually happens in the body. So it wasn't a good demonstration. So then a couple other doctors, Steinberg and Whitstone, along with some other researchers, lots of credit to go around here, but I can't, you know, I don't want to spend all day rattling off names. Mm -hmm. um, in the late 1980s, they just demonstrated what the change was that was required for LDL to cause macrophages to turn into foam cells. And it was the oxidation of the omega-6 fats in the LDL. When that change happened, the macrophages would hoover up huge amounts of cholesterol and fats from these LDL particles and become foam cells. So they then turned around and you can, they then turned around and did some experiments. First, they did an experiment in rabbits where they gave them seed oils or olive oil, which olive oil is high in monounsaturated fats, which are much less susceptible to becoming oxidized than polyunsaturated fats. So they gave them olive oil or they gave them seed oils, and then they tested their LDL to see which was more susceptible to becoming oxidized. And it was the olive oil was protective and the seed oils caused them to become susceptible to oxidation. And it's basic chemistry why this happens, right? So then they did the same experiment in humans repeatedly. And they discovered consistently that if you give humans 
olive oil, their LDL becomes less susceptible to becoming oxidized because of the monounsaturated fats in the olive oil. And that if you give them seed oils, it becomes more susceptible. So the only way that we know of in the science of the field of medicine known as cardiology to kick off heart disease in a human is by oxidizing the omega-6 fats in the blood and in the tissues. That's the only explanation. And we've known this since the 1980s, right? It's amazing. How... So yeah. if you turn around and in 19 or in 2020, the European Atherosclerosis Society came out and wrote a paper saying LDL causes heart disease, right? And they had written another paper in 2017 saying the same thing, but that was mostly epidemiology. And I guess a lot of people objected to it for whatever reasons, because three years later, they came out with another version. And in this one, they looked at the mechanisms of what causes heart disease. So this is the consensus statement of the European cardiology profession. And every single thing they looked at in their paper was oxidized omega-6 fats, oxidized LDL, different types of oxidized LDL. They even have a neat little chart showing how heart disease starts with a little oxidized LDL up in the corner. When did they reach that consensus? When The year again? The paper was 2020. Okay. So... In the paper, the 2020 paper, they say oxidized LDL is what causes heart right. disease. And the definition of oxidized LDL is LDL with oxidized omega-6 fats. Only. Is that the only. only fat? And that's the definition by them also. Like Yes. They and say they, it. They, they agree with you with in, in that. It's not The papers they cited was the paper by Steinberg and Whitstam looking at what alters LDL to make it atherogenic, to make it start off cardiovascular disease. So this is but their is that story. the only way to make LDL oxidize? Is there no other, like, for instance, I'm thinking if I'm smoking, can I oxidize LDL or is it not yes, possible? Yes, you can. And smoking can. is a great way to cause your LDL to become more oxidized, but the definition of oxidized LDL is LDL with oxidized omega-6 fats. The smoking is causing the omega-6 fats in the LDL to oxidize. So I still need omega-6. Even if I smoke, it just makes more oxidized, but I still, I mean, I still need omega-6. Well, I'm not going to, look, I'm not going to say that if you don't eat any seed oils that you can go and smoke. <laughs> <laughs> so... Let's just be clear about that. There are lots yeah, of reasons also, why smoking is bad for you. Also because it's impossible to remove uh, omega-6 completely and it wouldn't be even healthy. Right. right. But if you it's look like... at rates of smoking around the world in different populations, smoking increases your risk, say, by 5%. Say. I don't know exactly what it is, right? I don't. I don't recall. But there was a paper that looked at this exact question. But what they found was that there was a baseline risk that varied a lot between different populations. So if you were in Japan, you had half the rate of cardiovascular disease as an American, but if you smoked, 
it increased it by that 5%, right? So it went up by the same amount, no matter what population you looked at, right? But when the, they actually go look at the mechanism, why is smoking causing this problem? It's, it's causing the LDL to oxidize. And that's not super surprising because a lot of the toxins in cigarette smoke are the same toxins that are caused by seed oils when they get oxidized, is right? One of the most famous is acrylate. The famous for HNE or something like that? For... Yeah, there's HNE, but the one in, specifically in cigarette smoke is a toxin called acrylate. And in your body, omega-6 fats also are converted into acrylate. And a lot of these chemicals are very reactive. So if you, for instance, take the one I talk about a lot in a lot of my other podcasts is this chemical called HNE. This is the primary toxin that's in oxidized LDL, right? And if you put HNE next to an unoxidized omega-6 fat, it will cause it to oxidize, right? So it perpetrates the oxidation. And in the scientific literature, going back to Steinberg and Whitstam's papers, they, you know, the scientists the scientists understand that these oxidation products perpetrate this oxidation throughout your body, right? Excuse me, That's why we I, have I, antioxidants I, in our bodies yeah, to I'm, stop. I'm getting a bit confused because okay. HNE perpetrates the oxidation, but it's also produced by this oxidation is because you say, I, I'm not sure what I'm not getting is. So let's do you so get let's say HNE when you eat omega six and it, it becomes HNE, HNE, but, but also you're saying that HNE makes this omega six particle get oxidized is I'm not getting this right. Okay. So let's, so let's say you have a bunch of wooden dominoes okay. in a line, right? Mm -hmm. And you light one domino on fire. And that domino starts to burn, it gets hot, and it lights the domino next to it on fire, right? And that lights the third domino on fire. This is what happens with omega-6 fats, right? They oxidize, they turn into these oxidation products like HNE, which is mostly what it turns into, and that's the best studied. That, when it comes in contact with an unoxidized omega-6 fat molecule, will cause it to oxidize. So right. it's a chain reaction. It's a chain reaction. That's exactly right. Okay. Okay. Then coming back to to layman's common sense, one would think, okay, let's say that the main culprit is omega six oxidized oxi uh, oxidized LDL. That's right. the main culprit for heart disease. But if I have more LDL given that most people are going to have mm, omega-6 levels mm, higher than the ancestral uh, con consistent uh, percentage, given that fact, the less LDL or, or the more LDL I have, the more chances I get to get it oxidized. Is, is it not right or like what, what should I do? Like, I mean, Mario, to, that to me, it's, it seems that the, the most common sense approach would be like, okay, let's get omega six to a minimum if possible, which is, it sounds very hard. And I, I want to talk more about being practical afterwards. 
and how to really, really be able to lower your, your Omega-6 because it looks like a real challenge to me in the real world. But if you, if even if you are able to, to lower it, you still want your LDL to go down, don't you? Because then you will get less oxidized LDL. What, what am I missing? What's wrong with this Mario, argument? you were a very smart fellow. So I mentioned Steinberg and Whitstam, who discovered this process, right? Daniel Steinberg was a famous American cardiologist. And I think he came to that conclusion because he is also the fellow who went okay. to Merck and convinced Merck that they should release a drug that they were thinking of canning at that point. That was the first statin. So Daniel Steinberg convinced Merck to release the first statin. And I think it was exactly for that reason that his thought was, okay, we can't change the food supply, but maybe if we lower people's LDL, that they will be less susceptible to this process. Right. Is, is it and, a, it, it's a wrong conclusion, I guess. Well, no, right. it's not a wrong conclusion, right? It's just a less effective conclusion. Right. So my question, what I want to know is not. So that's one point. We talked about the Lorgaril and the Mediterranean diet and the Lyon diet heart study. So then along comes another bunch of scientists and they go and they look at a population of Amazonian Indians, the Chimane, and I'm sure I'm mutilating the pronunciation of that. So my apologies to all the Bolivians out there. They live in Bolivia and this is a population that doesn't eat any seed oils or didn't. And they had a zero rate of heart disease in the modern era, right? We don't have to go back to dusty old studies for the 1960s or doctor's recollections of what life was like in America in the early part of the 20th century. These folks live now, right? And they have no heart disease and they eat no seed oils. Okay. So they also looked at, okay, why are the, why are these people starting to get fat? <laughs> They find that the change in their diet that is associated with them starting to get fat. Oops. Okay, the, the, you were talking about the um, Chimani. Chimani. Yeah, the Chimani. So the uh, cardiology profess profession has become enamored with this group of Amazonian horticulturalists. What does that mean? They're not quite hunter-gatherers. They do a lot of hunting and gathering, but they also produce... They grow some of their own food in the jungle and it's mostly carbohydrate sources, right? They have no heart disease or virtually no heart disease. So they've gone to great lengths to confirm this. They've carted scanning machines down into the jungle, right? When these folks are the poster child of the cardiology profession now, right? What don't they eat? Well, they used to not eat any seed oils. And then the doctors started noticing that they were starting to get fat and they did this extensive survey of their diet and what changed cooking oils. Very funny, actually, because initially the folks only, who were getting fat only cooking oils only. That's the only thing they found that was changing. They found lots of other things. No that were processed stuff like other processed foods, mostly cooking oils, because they still initially they thought 
the correlation was to motorboats, right? That the fat people had were the folk, the fatter, the fatter people were the people who had motorboats. But those are the buy, people who can, would buy food, more than food. They could get to the market to buy the cooking oil. That's exactly right. But how, how do we know that they just bought cooking oil? Because they went cheap and or something. They went, they went into their kitchens and they tracked uh -huh, what okay. they were eating. Okay, okay. I mean, they wrote a whole paper on, you know, why they, they were trying to figure out what is the difference. And they didn't attribute it to any of the mechanisms that I know we know exist, but that, that was the conclusion of their paper. Interesting. Very, very interesting because they weren't hunter-gatherers, which means we can rule out carps as the main culprit because they were eating lots of carps. High carb um, diet, yep. The main change, it was this. I guess this is why you are so convinced when before I asked you, why do you think that when you compare those populations of Japanese, African-American versus the same ethnicity just in Africa, how they went from, I guess I, I it was 18% to 1% or something like that in Japan and you were so convinced that the main factor was seed oils. I guess it's because studies like this, like the Timanis, right? You, you put all the pieces of the puzzle together and then you become like really convinced. Besides, there's your own experience and the people you love and people who know you. And you are like very convinced that the number one factor in heart disease is this seed oil. Well, let's, as you pointed out, there are a lot of moving parts, right? And they're very hard to isolate in the studies. That's right. In the interventional right. studies, because they change many variables, many, that's, they change that's many, right. many, how do you say in English, variables? Variables, Vari yeah, variables, variables right? Variables. But what uh, we, not, not just one. Right. But what we are seeing is not only in every human population, okay, but in every animal population that's fed by humans, we see the same sweep of diseases start, right? So in America, we have an obesity epidemic in dogs. 68% of dogs per the latest number, which was a few years ago, are obese and dogs are starting to get heart disease and you know, cats are getting diet, huh? And Parkinson, Parkinson, cancer. All the same diseases. Cats are getting diabetes, right? How the blazes does a cat get diabetes? Well, a couple of the guys I talk to online are vets. <laughs> and if you go and you look at, there's an association called AFCO, the American Association of Feed Control Officials who is this government body that basically puts out the dietary guidelines for dogs and cats and horses and, you know, anything else where a company like Purina produces feed. And they're, they look just like the human dietary guidelines. Now, what dope thinks it's a good idea to feed a cat carbohydrates, right? Cats in the wild, like dogs in the wild, eat a diet that's about 1% carbohydrates, and that's mostly from glycogen in the tissue of the animals, right? But if you put, as the AFCO 
requires you to a dog or a cat on a diet that looks like the dietary guidelines. It's high in carbohydrates, it's low in saturated fat, and it's high in seed oils. They get all the same diseases that we do, right? They're not smoking. <laughs> <laughs> or at least I've never seen a dog or a cat smoke, Very right? Passively. That right. I mean, they're, you know, they could get secondhand smoke. Way, okay. Right, yeah. But they're not failing to count calories because they can't count. They've never counted, right? And the, I mean, I've is... done, I've done the reverse experiment with my dogs who we heard a little while ago on the break, right? They're on a beef diet. I feed them very little processed food and the processed food that I feed them is, you know, the sort of thing that we discussed before, low in carbohydrates, low in omega-6 fats, high in animal protein, high in animal fats. And, but probably 90% of the calories they get is just from beef. And I mean, they will literally, so they're not obese. Okay. People say we're obese because we have too much food to eat, right? So my dogs, walk away from a plate full of hamburger and they will come back hours later when they get hungry again. Right. And I did this with my other dog who had passed away a few years ago. He would walk away from a steak if he was hung, if he was full, he would just eat what he wanted to. He would walk away. He never got fat, never had any of these sorts of problems that humans and dogs have. Right. So they, they ate ad libitum that they say, right? Uh, like exactly. Exactly. Until My dogs really walk away full. from food every totally day. Full. We don't even know, you know, my wife feeds them, God bless her. And she just puts down a plate full of ground beef in the morning and they eat their fill and they walk away and then they cause mayhem for the rest of the day. And then later on they come back and they finish it off and we give them some more and they eat that. And then they walk away when they're full, right? They have a surplus of calories every single day. I never measure their food. The only time we measured their food was when we put them in the kennel for a few days and we had to like give the kennel enough food for them to be hungry. And we were like, we don't know how much they eat. They just, they eat whatever they want to eat. Right. But so they're not, that they're not on a diet. I don't worry about their calories. My other dog who also, who I was told by the breeder was an obesity prone breed. She said to me, she said, you have to be really careful how much you feed him because they will get fat. And I said, okay, with that dog, when I went on the paleo diet, I looked at his dog food and I was like, this stuff is horrible. And I switched him to a species appropriate dog. And again, let's go back to the scientific literature. We know exactly what dogs eat because we have wolves. So, you know, this is, this is, it's not hard to figure this thing out. Yeah, I would, I would argue maybe that dogs went through a process of many, many iterations of many generations where they were eating what we were, what we were eating, but also what we were eating was, was not what we eat now, nowadays. So uh, exactly. anyways, I'm smiling because my dog is right here and she's also very, in a very good shape. Mela, Mela. And you, you cannot see her, but she's having a nice nap, I, I follow your, yeah, I, I follow, she's a Spanish dog, so she, she has to, to nap a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but, 
Siesta time. Yeah, your camera is freezing a little bit. I just hope it's not in the recording. But anyway, the only the only thing I have, I mean, it's it seems that nowadays it's very very easy to agree that processed food is bad for you and it's bad for your dog, it's bad for your cat, it's bad for everybody. But the the problem is to see uh, how much it weights the in in a scientific way how much the linoleic acid weights in that equation of processed food because processed foods as you mentioned is it, it probably has a higher amount of carbs than we need and it, it also has other components additives and chemicals and you know some people would say in farm animals antibiotics hormones growth hormones i mean how can you what's what's the thing that really is is a is a is many pieces that you you find or is it something like really really makes you think that the linoleic acid part is a huge protagonist in in that modern disease world well, like for instance when you when you say i he- i heard you once say that when you want to induce cancer in a rat in a laboratory um, mouse, you need to to feed her uh, linoleic acid or something like that. Uh, what what's the what kind of evidence is the one that made you think? Okay, linoleic acid is is the main culprit in in modern disease. We've, if it is, maybe it's not. Maybe, maybe you don't think it is, but I I'm guessing that you think it's the main culprit. Well, we got so let's. I think we've pretty much covered heart disease. So let's talk about some of the the other big issue, right? We know from the Chimene that they're starting to get obese, just like everybody else in the world. Um, And we have, we know exactly how to make animals or people get fat, okay? There are companies that sell foods that are specifically designed to make people and animals get fat. Okay. There's a company called Research Diets. Um, it's based in New Jersey. They have a nice website with all their food ingredients and they sell food to scientists so that scientists can feed it to lab animals and make them fat. Right. Your physician, if you go to your doctor and you tell him you need to put on weight, He's going to give you a food that he knows will cause you to put on weight, right? They did a fascinating experiment um, looking at calorie restriction in rhesus monkeys. And this is not going on a tangent, right? Two different laboratories in the United States over like 20 odd years tried putting these two groups of monkeys on two different diets to show that calorie restriction extends their lifespan, right? But they were two different diets. They didn't talk to each other. Scientists are funny creatures too, I guess. So anyway, the two results came out and one of the groups showed that calorie restriction um, worked and the other group showed that it didn't. And then they started looking at the diets and trying to reconcile what happened, right? One of the groups of monkeys, the group that didn't see a benefit from calorie restriction was on a diet that included 
a lot of wheat. And they got endometriosis, and they tend to die from reproductive cancers in the females, right? Um, my mother had endometriosis. Um, gluten intolerance is commonly associated with endometriosis in humans, right? And my mother wound up getting reproductive cancer and had to have a hysterectomy. Um, so one group, they were on a wheat diet. They didn't see the benefits of longevity. The other group did seem, it was on a very refined diet and they did seem to see some of the benefits of longevity, but they got fat, right? What were they eating? Corn oil and sugar. Okay. So the monkeys on corn oil and sugar got fat. The monkeys on the wheat, more natural diet got endometriosis and died early, but they, you know, they didn't get fat. Okay. So. The food your doctor is going to give you is called Insure. Similar products to Insure have been around since the 1950s. I found an advertisement in the British Medical Journal from the 1950s for a product called Weight On, corn oil and sugar. This actress called Raquel Welch, early in her career, was the spokesperson for Weight On. Girls, if you're not voluptuous like me, eat weight on and it will make you put on weight, right? So that's Insure now, and there are a couple of other similar products, is the standard way for a doctor to make you fat, right? I've got a study where they compared research diets, obesity diet to Insure, and they looked at the mechanism between the two of them, and it was the effect of linoleic acid on your body right? It's really fascinating. The, another researcher, he had two diets that he would use to cause obesity in his animals, uh, Professor Serwit. And one of them had a lot of butter, but it also had some seed oils in it. And it had some sugar. The diet that didn't cause obesity that he gave to the animals, right, was mostly sugar. Right? Some Further researchers from China recently did a paper where they blocked the metabolism of linoleic acid into HNE in the body of these animals, and it protected them against obesity. And we've got multiple studies looking at multiple different types of these diets. And if you block the effect of the metabolism of linoleic acid into these toxins in the body, you protect. from obesity. If you give the animal this toxin on its own, it causes it to become obese, whether it's a bacteria, a uh, C. elegans roundworm, or a rodent. So, um, is it, you know, is it I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of at a loss here because, you know, the, in my view, you know, back, Back to what I was saying at the beginning of this, when I used to read studies about this, I used to have a panic attack every time I would find a new study because I was going to because I was like, oh, my God, this is the one that's going to disprove me and show me that I'm going down the wrong path here and I'm wasting my time. And at this point, I don't have that reaction anymore because the evidence is just so overwhelming that this is 
not the only thing involved. And there are definite confounders. Like if you eat carbohydrate on a high seed oil diet, that's worse. There are reasons why a ketogenic diet is somewhat protective for a high seed oil diet. Omega-3 fats are protective if you're on a high seed oil diet, which is probably why the Japanese and the Chinese, who are very similar genetically, are having a different experience mm -hmm. with obesity. Mm -hmm. They both eat a lot of seed oils, but the Japanese also eat a lot of fish, right? Interestingly enough, the Japanese and the Chinese share a genetic mutation that predisposes them to obesity from seed oils, which is the th same thing that was done in one of those studies where they blocked the effect of seed oils in the Sirwit diet on the rodents and they didn't get obese, right? They use the exact same mutation that Chinese and Japanese obese? people have. Yeah. So I may still be wrong, but I don't, like you our, know, I'd be shocked. Omega-6 <laughs> because it, the calories they eat are more effective or because they get they have more appetite and less satiated or both and in which proportions both 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 three things there are three things that they do the first is they induce hyperphagia and they do this by converting to endocannabinoids in your gut when you eat them right back to medicine there's a drug called dronabinil it's made it's thc right it's the same active chemical that's in pot it's approved by the us fda to give to people who need to put on weight you know people like who have hiv or uh, who have cancer who don't want to eat they give them okay. thc and a cannabinoid drug and it makes them eat right linoleic acid in your gut turns into the natural your body's own version of thc and it causes you to eat if you block that drug using a drug by Romanovant, it salt, it cures obesity in animals, and it used to be a human-approved drug. We can get it. That's kind of a side that the one topic that why it isn't a human-approved drug suicide? anymore. But at any rate, it was effective. Okay. Um, second, yeah, exactly, exactly, or want to commit suicide. So the second thing that the endocannabinoids do is they lower your metabolism, right? They make you burn less energy, so you become more efficient at storing fat. The third thing that they do, HNE, the chemical that we've talked about, actually alters your, damages the pathways in your cell that control how much fat you're storing, and it causes you to store more fat than you ought to be, right? And this is when I talk about a fundamental model that's a fundamental biological model that happens in bacteria that happens in roundworms, you know, the standard model that they use to look at, uh, um, basic metabolic issues and it happens in rodents. And if you block it through a, two different mechanisms, it prevents obesity. Right. And if you look at fat humans, they have high levels of this, obesogenic so chemicals in their fat you, cells and throughout their bodies agree with the idea that foods with high content of la are also survival food evolutionary because they 
put our biology in a scarcity mode like you have to save more energy winter is coming there's we haven't hunted so we we're gonna store more fat we're gonna become more efficient because it's an advantage it will be a feature not a bug right if if i'm more efficient in nature with my calories and and i spend less calories that would be an evolutionary advantage not not nowadays but in when back when we were hunter gatherers, would you agree with that idea also? I follow you. You've done you. phenomenal amount of research, Maria, on this. Very impressed. <laughs> okay, the problem with that hypothesis is that humans aren't squirrels, right? There's a model called the Arctic ground squirrel, where they seem to like omega-6 fats because of hibernation. There are two problems here. The first problem is that if you give them omega-3 fats instead of omega-6 fats, they hibernate better. The other problem is they're rodents, we're primates, right? There's only one primate that actually hibernates and it lives in the tropics. And it hibernates because of the dry season. It runs out of food, which is the same reason the squirrels hibernate ultimately right? The cold is causing a lack of food, so they hibernate. So what do these primates do? Our closest, close relatives compared to a rodent, they avoid omega-6 fats before they hibernate. Why would they do that? Because the, because it oxidizes over time. So if you're going to be sitting around for a few months in a hot climate, you don't want a fat that's going to be turning into toxins in your tissues. Whereas if you're in a cold climate and you're lowering so your body temperature, it's that's going to be much less of an issue to you. If it, the temperature is higher, I'm going to get more oxidation of my omega-6 fatty acids. Is that right? So, wow, it's, I mean, now exactly. <laughs> my head is exploding because... So what, what would that mean? Like... Would that mean that maybe uh, the optimal diet, it also depends on your latitude? Because like... I wouldn't, not if you're a human, because okay. I mean, we're so, warm blooded, right? Yeah, Our bodies are pretty much it, at a constant temperature. Um, I mean, if you're a if you're an Arctic ground squirrel and your body so temperature is going down to forty degrees every year, omega six then at the same knock yourself rate out. We have this <laughs> stability in our temperature, right? Like thirty-seven degrees Celsius. Okay, okay, okay. Right. Very, very interesting. Right. Okay, so yeah, like where right. I, I would like, I would love because you have so many, you've made so many podcast interviews you with the greatest of the greatest who are much more able than I am to really squeeze your your deep knowledge about the mechanisms and the studies and everything and I, I invite everybody to follow you especially now that we can translate very quickly uh, these these interviews but I would like to to get to a more practical approach with you and take advantage of all your experience because I'm sure that because you are an engineer, you have this solving problem mindset. I'm sure you, you've really thought about these issues and, and 
and come up with solutions. So like, for instance, before you said, well, keto might have a protective effect because I'm going to assume that it's very hard. I will ask you also how to lower it in the real world where, where I live and most people who are watching us live. But before, I would like to know more about possible biohacks, let's call them this way, to, to make omega-6 less harmful. Like for instance, you said, okay, keto might be protective. Like if you eat omega-6 and high amount of carbs, it's gonna be worse. You also said like omega-3, is, is it, it counters like the effect of omega-6. I'm, I'm very interested in that. And also like I've heard you in other podcasts say that carnosine, like if you eat beef, it has a protective, can, can, how do you pronounce it? Carnosine, carnosine, yes. Which is in beef, for instance, that it has a protective effect. Carnosine. With a forage uh, any. Yeah. And I don't know, maybe maybe things like exercise, maybe. Like, or if if I don't become fat, it's going to be that protective. If I fast, for instance. Absolutely. Am I going to clean my body more if I do intermittent fasting? I mean, all those things. What, what if... If I'm a very practical, down-to-earth person and I know it's going to be very hard for me to get to that threshold of, did you say 3%? Did you say that below 3% is when you really are in consistent levels with our Three. evolution and when you see real benefits? And I guess it's very hard and and also to measure it. As I mean, with the, with the understanding it okay with the others it's very important to understand one thing right omega-6 fats are a natural part of every food that you eat right period end of story so trying to avoid them completely is a not possible and b bad idea right um omega-6 fats are essential the only people who've ever been shown to be deficient in omega-6 fats are either in a laboratory or under a physician's care. So it doesn't happen to people in real life. So don't worry about that. But don't try and avoid this stuff, right? What you want to avoid which, which are, everywhere. are okay. concentrated oils, sources of omega-6 fats. Everywhere. Seed oils, obviously. Huh? They're everywhere, yes, true. But seed oils and animals, as you mentioned, like pork and chickens that are monogastric have a single stomach like we do because monogastric animals concentrate seed oils in their adipose tissue so if you eat a pig that has been fed grains and seed oils to fatten it up you are basically eating Is that a bottle worse of corn oil than having it Not straight from the water extreme, because but, i think right? if if i get the omega 6 from the factory is very bad, but if the pig or the chicken has eaten them, is it more oxidized because it oxidizes in, in their bodies and then I get it and then, or it has nothing to do? That's a great question. I don't know um, 
how oxidized the fats are in a pig or a chicken. I know that some of the chickens particularly, they get this, they get some fairly nasty diseases that are similar to some human diseases. Um, they did a really interesting experiment. The same group of researchers who I've talked about repeatedly, who did reanalyze the Minnesota coronary experiment data, um, they did an experiment on with animals where they altered the linoleic acid intake in the body and showed that it controlled obesity. They lowered the saturated fat and increased the linoleic acid and those animals got fat. Um, and then they went and they did an experiment where they fed soybean oil to salmon of all things, right? Because farm raised salmon, fish meal is really expensive. And so they try and feed, you know, salmon and soybean oil, soybean meal and soybean oil. And it turns out that they concentrate it just like all the other critters we've talked about. And then they ground them up and they fed them to mice to see what would happen to the mice. And the mice got fat and sick like the salmon did, right? So it clearly concentrates up the food chain. Um, is it better to eat it from pork or my, chicken my question, than to is, is put salad dressing is, is, on your salad? You I don't really the know. Oxidation effect, um, or is just resets at some point? Like, is it, can, can you like? You, is it like because I it's mean if it's if the omega it's six, cumulative uh, goes out from the seed yeah right okay the original seed which is protective because it has vitamin E uh, which also you say that it doesn't work in your body but it works on in, in the seed something like that but then it's protected and then it gets oxidized it, the, right it, it starts the oxidizing process as soon as it leaves the seed. And then it goes through a cycle. And my question is, when does that cycle end? Because if I eat a pork or a chicken, which is a bottle with legs of seed oils, okay, then if if the the, the <laughs> seed oil, the omega-6 I'm getting, the fat I'm getting is like, let's say, two years old, is it going to be more oxidized than if I get it directly from the seed, because then it would make sense something that they told me when I was a child, they told me, don't eat pork fat and avoid chicken fat because it's a carcinogenic and, and it's bad for your heart. And why is it bad? Because it has saturated fat. Well, it turns out that, oops, that this is wrong, but it still is bad. But yeah, not oops. because of its saturated fat content, it's bad because of its omega-6 content. So the same advice works. And and I will also think, okay, if, if I only have chicken to it, would it be wiser if I eat just the, the fat-free parts, which are less tasteful, by the way? I, I mean, I, I love the leg and I love, you know, these, these fatty parts, but I yes. would have to eat like maybe chest... Uh, breast the, the breast uh, part you know what i mean yeah yeah very, very dry but maybe chicken, safer because yeah, I, I chicken get breast yum, yum. cook it in water or maybe a vapor right or like you cook it in butter if, if with, the, with the vapor the fat goes down i mean 
so many questions, you know, so many practical questions, like what happens with this omega six? If it's cumulative, what happens with the, the chicken that is getting its uh, seed oil from third hand, let's say, you know, it's an old seed oil. Does it play or what does your intuition, if we don't have any evidence, what does your intuition tell you? What about uh, when you have no choice? Let's say you, you get trapped in a supermarket. Let's say, okay, Tucker, you are trapped in a supermarket and you're going to be there for one month. How do you survive? Like an, a normal, a Spanish supermarket with no grass-fed animals and, you know, what, what kind of decisions, what kind of choices would you, would you... Sorry, I'm, I'm asking too many questions. So they're all related. They're all related with the same thing, you know? It's, no, no. They're all excellent questions, unfortunately. <laughs> so if I was trapped okay. in a supermarket, polygas, what would I eat? Well, a, first to go would be the beef. That purifies, right. that purifies the... It's a ruminant, right. And the, the oils, right. The bacteria in the rumen of the cow digests the oils the and alters it okay. into trans fats, but healthy, natural trans fats, the good ones, like con something called CLA, conjugated linoleic acid. Um, so first to go is the beef. Second, white, white rice are the healthy starches. Okay. okay. Right. Like potatoes, rice, white rice, um, vegetables, right? Knock yourself out in the produce department. Hopefully it's well refrigerated. So It'll last for a month, right? Wild um, fish. That's, wild fish. you know, the dairy department. If, if it's only, if it's Cheese. wild. And vice versa. Fish. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I interviewed a guy named Tom Brenna on my podcast. And at the end, we talked about this question because he's one of the leading researchers into omega-6 and 3 fats. And he also is a scientific advisor to a seafood organization. And he had a very funny quote. He said, the thing about salmon and trout who are in the salmon family of fish <laughs> is that they both have the good sense to die if you don't feed them omega-3 fats. Very considerate, very considerate. Right? Part, yeah. So because of this, while you can get Yes, while you can get some, and I once had salmon in a restaurant that was so dis disgustingly fatty that I had to send it back. Um, in general, farm-raised salmon isn't the worst thing in the world to eat. Now, there's also tilapia, which tends to have higher levels of um, pork or chicken in terms of the omega-6 fat and content. Also, I guess, because they also have the omega-3, which counters the omega-6. Right. And why, why does that why? happen? I never understood this. Because the omega-3 fats are preferred in your body and your body will put them in the membranes before the omega-6 fats. And then the omega-6 don't right? get the chance to oxidize in my membranes, in my cell membranes, because of that, because of that choice. Right. right. Very easy to the point explanation. I, I think I, I feel I'm understanding it for the first time in my life. Okay, and what does the body do with 
this Omega Six that it doesn't want? Like, does it, it take it away? Like, can can I can I excrete it? Can 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 it excrete it or something? Well, okay. So let's say another th another important thing to know: the most effective way, according to the same scientist who was at one point the president of the international study the International Society for the Study of Fatty Acids and Lipids, ISFAL, their official position is that there are two effective ways to raise omega-3 in the blood serum. The first is obviously to eat more omega-3. The second is to eat less omega-6. Right? That so that, that is first thing you want to do is reduce your omega-6 intake to the extent practical, right? And that obviously depends on your budget, but you know, I mean, yeah, you can go crazy and eat grass-fed beef and pastured pork and pastured chicken and blah, blah, blah. That's very expensive. I don't think it's not practical for most of us to do it. And I think that most of us can fix our diets within a budget, right? If you can get a meat pastured eggs or get omega-3 eggs, right? Chicken are very good about converting flaxseed into longer chain omega-3 fats, right? That's a good option. That said, eggs, if you're going to be getting an omega-6 source, eggs seem to be one of the better ones. So, you know, we have pastured eggs available in the supermarket here. That's what I eat. So you're, you're, I eat hardly any chicken. I eat a bit of pork because bacon, <laughs> you know, and sausages, but if I'm cooking bacon, I throw the fat away and I actually dry the fat off in a paper towel, right? Because that is going to be highly oxidized. And I don't eat a lot of bacon. You know, when my wife and I, when she got off her vegan diet, she went bacon crazy and we both started putting on weight. So, you know, bacon I have, but it's more of a treat. Most of what I eat is beef and eggs, dairy, cheese, you know, things that are going to be lower in omega-6 fats. A lot of rice, potatoes. I live in Idaho, you know, cook things in butter or olive oil. Try and get good quality olive oils, you know, to the extent that you can. There are olive oils that are now certified to not be adulterated with vegetable oils. Um, I don't know how that works in Spain, um, but we have such olive oils here in the United States, and some of them are Spanish and Italian, so you guys must have them as well. Um, Huge problem in the olive oil business going back to Roman times has been adulteration of olive oil with crap seed oils. Um, so that's something to be mindful of, right? So once you do all the easy things to do um, and you're lowering and your I, intake. I think I've heard right? you once say that even if the olive oil is pure, extra virgin olive oil, that the amount of LA changes depending on the type of olive oil that it goes from yeah low it can, to even 20 percent or something like that something what right it's and it's just a natural aspect of olive trees that you know they can have wildly variant the number i saw was two percent to 21 percent of linoleic acid very... it's a huge it's a huge difference and the same thing is true with avocados right it's just due to variation and this isn't due because they're adulterated or fraudulent or anything. It's just the nature of the, so, I mean, I use olive oil. I don't use a lot of oil, olive oil. Mostly what I use is 
pastured butter because here in the United States, that's going to have the lowest linoleic acid content. Is, is there a way to um, tell whether olive oil is higher or lower in linoleic acid? Not without a laboratory. Nothing um, about its taste I or, use... or its texture or something, nothing that we can... No, unfortunately, they're really good about making fraudulent um, extra virgin olive oil. You put some chlorophyll in to make mm -hmm. it green. And, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. I know they can tell in a lab. And I've talked to people who think that they can tell. I've never heard of a consistent... You know, there used to be something called the fridge test, which I was a big fan of. And then some scientists went through and actually looked at it and just demolished it. So, you know, the idea was that if you put the olive oil in the fridge, that if it solidified, that meant that it was good. And if it didn't, that meant that it was bad. And it turns out that's not really the case because unfortunately, the monounsaturated fats that we want don't solidify in the fridge. So... You could have a perfectly, and I've, and I tried this experiment after I read this, right? Because this is the way my mind works. I got a couple of bottles of olive oil from the California Olive Oil Company, which is one of the ones that certifies their olive oil here in the United States. And I put them both in the fridge and looked at what happened. And one of them solidified pretty much most of the way, and the other one barely at all. And you know, so yeah, if you. If you don't have a lab, you know, buy it from the companies that certify that spend the money to certify that their products are actually olive oil and avoid the ones that don't. I don't know, you know, what else to say yeah, we, on that we, we topic. We don't have this certification because we assume that if it says extra virgin olive oil, it should be a crime. If it is not, if it's, there's something else than olive flesh on it, like if there's something like the seed or any other thing. It should be this. I mean, in a Spanish mindset, it's like it's not conceivable. Spanish, Italian, but I'm very surprised because I mean, I wouldn't be surprised after what you tell, because if if, if the Romans were doing it, I mean, maybe they still do it. They did it with the currency, so we can do it with. They can do it with olive oil. So, yeah. So, well, there was actually in uh, Spain a number of years ago. There was a huge. Uh, scandal over oil and I don't recall exactly what happened um, but they call it the toxic oil syndrome and it killed a bunch of people in Spain mm. in 1981 yes, yes. 20,000 people got sick and 300 died because of adulterants in olive no, oil. No, it wasn't olive oil. It was so, aceite de colza, which I don't know. It was a kind of very cheap seed oil. And it seems... I don't remember exactly what the cause of. It was not from seed oils. Uh, whatever the adulterant was, um, it was not seed oils. It was some, you know, industrial adulterant. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you know, I'm looking at a, uh, I'm looking at a recent article in the Washington Post from Spanish October rape, 19th, rape 2021. Oil, rape oil is the translation. Uh, so anyway, I mean, even in Spain, this can be a problem. Adulterated oils. Um, yeah, it had a, it had a, it seems it so, seems it had a toxic. I'm I'm researching it right now. It seems it had a toxic substance. A aniline. Aniline. Does yeah. it ring a bell? Aniline? 
Yeah, I think that's right. It was. It didn't it was have anything poison. to do with it, it being poison. adulterated with seed oils. It was. Yeah. It was poisonous. Yeah. basically. Right. So yeah, be mindful. You know, I mean, supposedly the bureaucrats look after this. I know they certainly don't in the United States. Um, and while I do think Europeans have in general a better class of bureaucrat, <laughs> I wouldn't trust them a hundred percent either. No. I mean, we have a history. Of, um, yeah. Anyway, so then, what else? What about what about exercise? Exercise, um, fasting, fasting, and exercise. The benefits of exercise, in large part, are twofold. Right? One, it makes your body burn fats, which seems to be just a general good thing for your body. Right? Burning fats in exercise upregulates your body's antioxidant systems, right? Which makes you more protected from oxidative stress in your body. And oxidative stress is basically omega-6 toxicity, okay. right? Additionally, so I personally follow a protocol called the Maffetone protocol, where you exercise at low um, intensity for longer periods of time. This upregulates the fat oxidation capability of your body. It also makes exercise a lot more fun because you're not beating yourself to death. <laughs> and it makes you a better athlete. So it's like an all-around benefit. Is it less oxidative um, if it's low, low intensity? Or is it just um, yes. less, uh, you know? Uh... And that it's less oxidative damage and it upregulates your body's oxidative protection systems at the same time, right? So you're winning if both ways. If it's low intensity, I mean, high intensity, low intensity would, right. would be oxi more oxida pro, pro oxidation, pro oxidative. High intensity is going <laughs> to promote more oxidative damage because you are burning more glucose, right? But that's very and interesting. And the glucose Nobody's, is creep. Nobody tells us that this. Well, I will say that one of the leading researchers on this stuff is a gentleman named Inigo San Milan, who is Spanish and teaches at the University of Colorado. So by all means, go uh, see what he has to say on things. Sure. Uh, he's one of my favorite researchers and is one of the leaders in this area and has, I think, the guy who's won the Tour de France the last few years. Um, he's one of his advisors. Um, I'm not up on bike racing or the Tour de France, except as a occasional spectator. But we know that this works in healthy people and we know and makes athletes better athletes. And we also know that it's incredible, incredibly beneficial in sick people. That's very interesting. Um, so if you're sick and you want to become a world-class athlete, this is the way to go. And what, what would you call low <laughs> intensity? Like, for instance, walking or maybe running slow? Uh, generally... The formula Dr. Maffetone uses is 180 minus your age with a couple of adjustments for your underlying health, oh, right? For your heart rate. For so your heart rate. for your heart rate, right? Because heart rate, your heart rate is a basic measure of your overall metabolic output, right? And this is true for humans and all species. So it's like a basic thing to measure. So if you are exercising... 180 minus a, your age and... Minus your age with some adjustments in there. And you can find lots of podcast interviews with 
Dr. Maftone talking about his protocol or with Alan Cousins, who's a, re, who's a researcher, and Inigo San Milan, who have both looked at this with athletes and, you know, how to promote fat burning in the metabolism. So, so for um, most people, this is going to be like maybe running very slow or walking very fast or maybe elliptical right. uh, machine, right. but while watching a video, you know, like, I, you, you mean it's like the same because this rings a bell in me. There was an optimal range in which you got the most fat burning. And, and if, if in, I think it was something like that, like uh, your age, um, 180 minus your age and yeah, so much adjustments. But then is the same, is the, is the same window? Like the same window you get the benefit of burning more fat is also the same window you get the benefit of uh, getting less oxidation? Right, right. And up and upregulating your body's oxidative defenses, right? Now, the second thing is that interestingly enough, when you fast, your body preferentially burns linoleic acid in humans, right? Really? So how do you combine these two things? Right. The first thing, if you like me, when I started this, started off doing this, had been on an, a standard American diet, you know, high seed oils for my whole life. Um, you want to fast intermittently and you want to exercise. And ideally, you want to exercise in a fasted state in such a way that you're burning the maximum amount of fat out of your fat tissues. Right. Because this, as we've, as we've discussed, this fat is not neutral when it's in your fat tissues, right? When it sits there, it's oxidizing and causing damage. So you want to lower it, I think, in an, a reasonable way, but in, a, in the most efficient way possible, right? And that is, and it, this is not complicated, right? So at the minimum, you could get up in the morning and go for a long walk before you eat breakfast. Right. You're going to be in a ketotic state when you wake up in the morning. You're going to promote fat burning and ketosis, which is independently beneficial. Um, and you're going to be preferentially burning off the omega-6 fats that are stored in your adipose tissues. Is there right? I, there was, is there any reason why it burns first, the omega-6 versus other fats? We don't know why, but we do know that it happens in humans. That's very interesting. I mean, I would imagine it's because, <laughs> Let's I mean, get we have, you know, <laughs> as soon as possible, yeah. your body knows that this these things are this is, uh, a problem, out, out. right? I mean, yeah, right. That's why we have antioxidant systems. And one of the major antioxidants that they're protecting us against are these omega-6 fats, which are, as I said before, they're a natural part of the diet and you're always going to be exposed to them. So we have robust systems to protect when, us. When you that. say we have protection, like for instance, is that glutathione, like the antioxidant we generate, like? Yeah, glutathione is one of the major, is probably the most important antioxidant. Um, if you're born without the ability, well, if you're not able to make glutathione, you won't be born in the first place because you'll die in the uterus. So that's super important. One of the symptoms of oxidative stress, and when I say oxidative stress, I use it interchangeably with seed oil toxicity, okay. 
One of the symptoms of oxidative stress in all of these experiments is a reduced level of glutathione in the body because glutathione combines with these toxins, notably HNE, and protects your body from them, right? It detoxifies them and is then excreted. Great. That's, that's great news. That's, you know, it's very hopeful because sometimes when we hear, oh, you have to go to um, an ancestral threshold, which is very hard to, to reach in, in the modern world, because of what you say, it's, it's very difficult to get food which is not contaminated with some omega-6, which shouldn't be there. Because even if you eat cow, well, you say it's protected because it's a ruminant. But yeah, and, and okay, so exercise, uh, when you eat uh, beef, carnosine is also protected. Fasting. Carnosine is the most effective detoxifier of HNE that we know of. And it's been shown to be directly beneficial against HNE toxicity in the body. So yeah, that, you know, beef is like the double whammy because A, it has less omega-6 and B, it has a lot of the most effective detoxifier of omega-6. So big fan of and beef it, it and goes directly against the official recommendations i'm, I'm sure you're very very aware of that because oh it's like now yeah. they're demonizing red meat and they will only be right maybe with pork because pork is red but it's not a ruminant and it's more contaminated but with beef is the exact opposite the beef is like you know like a medicine the, the way you're describing it it's like a cure for all it's like a medicine that's exactly right and beef we could do a whole nother we could do a whole nother episode on why red meat and specifically the iron in red meat is not something that you should be worried about, assuming you've already fixed the rest of your diet. The iron, because once I read, now that you mentioned the iron, that men die younger than women because we don't have the period, we, we don't have the menstruation, it, you know, the, what they have uh, every month, I, I don't know how it's said in English. And then, the, therefore, the, the period, period, yes. The, how do you say? The period. period, the period. The period. Therefore, we yeah. lose less iron because they they release iron with the blood. And I was told years ago that this is one of the things that make women more live longer, with more longevity. Is that well, total BS or maybe? There's some nuance to it. The iron because it depends on how the iron relates to other factors. Why is iron in the diet a problem? Iron in the diet is a problem because it catalyzes the oxidation of omega six fats. Okay. Right. So if you go to McDonald's, I mean, a lot of these studies that like complain about American food, they show you a picture of a, of a McDonald's hamburger, right? But if you go to McDonald's, they don't just give you a hamburger, they give you a hamburger with French fries and a Coke, right? So the, the potatoes are fried in a seed oil, canola oil. Um, and when it goes into your gut, it's going to run into all of the heme iron from the red meat, which is going to oxidize it. 
And again, back to the animal experiments, they have gone through, I mean, God bless the scientists who did this experiment. They segregated out heme-containing fecal water, meaning poop. the water that comes out yeah. with poop, from the HNE-containing fecal water, the toxin from omega-6 fats. And then they looked at the effect on the animals of each of those components. And only the HNE-containing water from polyunsaturated fats is carcinogenic in the animals, right? And there's a whole, I mean, we don't have enough time to go into this, but there's a whole field called of study now called ferroptosis, right? Ferrous, ferric is the Latin word for iron, right? It's why the symbol for iron is FE. Ferroptosis is this iron-mediated cell death that used to drive me bananas because it was obvious to me when I read these papers that what they were looking at wasn't really iron toxicity. It was polyunsaturated fat toxicity. Well, they figured that out. <laughs> and they now realize that what's happening is what I just said. The iron's catalyzing the oxidation of omega-6 fatty acids. And that if you replace the omega-6 fatty acids with the monounsaturated fats from olive oil, you don't get ferroptosis. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. So whole nother, whole nother field of the literature that we could go into on that particular topic. So although I think ferroptosis is a bad word, um, it's actually an excellent buttress for my argument now that they've finally figured it out. Wow. Wow. So I'm, I'm very, I, I apologize because I've been having you for a long, long, long time, but it's so fascinating. And there are so many branches, you know, when you start pulling the, the thread, it's like it gets more threaded threads everywhere and they're all very fascinating. So to keep it like very to summarize a little bit, um, the practical point of view for the people who, who reach the, the end of this podcast, this interview. So keto fasting exercise intermittent fasting short term like no more than 12 hours what happens if we are talking about prolonged fasting why why not prolonged fasting well you uh, you start burning up your body's muscle tissue and i don't think there's any benefit to it in the long term i've never seen any evidence of a benefit to long-term fasting Tw i mean look when we evolved I mean, I've heard stories that the American Indians could go for eight days without food, right? They were basically predators and they might go for eight days where they couldn't catch a meal, right? That's kind of on the long side. I think that if you're doing 12 to 24 hours, that's probably pretty close to normal where you're not going to start burning up too much in the way of muscle mm -hmm. tissue. Muscle tissue is really hard to get back. I mean, if you burn up muscle tissue, it takes you six months, a year to build it back up. So you want to preserve what you have, especially as you mm -hmm. get older, because it gets harder and harder to build it up. But, but you will get the benefits of going into ketosis, which is a normal part of our metabolism. Ketones seem to be independently verifiable or beneficial, and you will be preferentially burning off any linoleic acid that you consume. Right. And I think the way to your, you know, you asked me before we got on this about acorn fed pork. I kept this question right till the end, for the end. Yeah. a Spanish delicacy, yeah. 
which I've heard is delicious. I've never had the opportunity to try it because it's too expensive and I'm too no, cheap. No, you will love it. You will love uh, it. No, it's like <laughs> this one is, it was, there's a, like some places, some special places where you can find it. it. It took me, I don't want to make publicity of the brand because they don't pay me, but it took me <laughs> years to find because, well, it's a long story. I don't want to bore you with that. But yeah, you have to research a lot to, to find proper uh, right. acorn fed pork without many additives this is totally this is 100 natural and this is very hard to find it's right. like they make something for you and they make sure they, they make something good for you and they also make sure it's not that good so what can we do to spoil it okay let's add some additives like uh, nitrite pot uh, nitritos nitrites you know nitrates yeah they become nitrosamines in your stomach i mean horrible thing so yeah but this one is totally natural you know what the, you know what the biggest source of nitrates is surprise me vegetables come on but the same kind of way 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 more than really pork. the same the same kind the same yeah, kind don't... of the exact well in, in the united states part of our bureaucratic fraudsters at the fda if you use if you call a pork cured you're required to use nitrates. If you use celery juice, which is high in nitrates, then you can't call it cured, even though it has the exact same effect and the exact chemicals. So all of but the manufacturers who are in- You don't need nitrates. It's maybe it's longer and more salt. expensive Yeah, but nitrates, but I mean- You don't really need- Has everybody, has anybody ever told you don't eat celery because it's full no. of nitrates? No, that, that's what I was wondering. Is, is it the same kind of nitrate, like the same kind of thing that yeah, it's that a, becomes nitrosamines in your stomach? And I've been told for years that this was very carcinogenic and, you know. Yeah, I wouldn't worry about that. Um, eat your celery, eat your cured pork. Now, what's interesting is, you know, there are some studies that find that processed meats are harmful and red meat is not. And... As, we just, as we've discussed, if you have, say, pork that has high amounts of linoleic acid in it and you preserve it, the linoleic acid is going to break down into H&E mm -hmm. over time, right, into the toxins. And that's what they find in cured meats is that they are higher in these omega-6 omega toxins. So I would because say... Because they're older. Yes, because they're older. Treat it just because okay. they're older. Right. I would say treat it like you would alcohol. Okay. Okay. We know alcohol is poisonous. Alcohol is a toxin, period, end of story. Any objective scientist, you know, the Peter Atia podcast recently talked about this, and he said, I think that any amount of alcohol is bad for you, period, end of story. And I think he's absolutely right in that, right? I totally agree. I've been saying that for years, but I still drink, right? Because it's fun and it's enjoyable. And I'm still going to eat cured pork and I'm not going to make it 100% of my diet. But, you know, I'm certainly going to enjoy bacon from time to time. And I'm certainly going to enjoy sausage from time to time. But, you know, I'm going to treat it like I do alcohol. Okay, but the question, the original question was, is it better acorn fed cure pork than maybe should be? I mean, you know, it's free. Acorns are pretty high in omega-6 okay. fats, but it depends on what else they're eating. And it depends on how they're processing okay. it. 
I mean, there are a lot of variables And maybe there. the exercise. But the I would say, because this given it's $100 a pound, this is like asking me, you know, should I drink Calvados all day long instead yeah, of water? Okay, okay. <laughs> sure, if you can afford it. <laughs> no, but I, every now and then, you might. I, this was like a very good deal, you know what I mean? It's, it's a, that I, hard to find, very hard to find, but it was a very good deal and it was much cheaper. And that's why I was very surprised and totally natural. And I've been looking for years and years to find something like this. That's why I was asking you. And but my question is, and I my answer is enjoy <laughs> it, have it with a nice glass of wine, and please don't think about me or omega six fats for a second while you're doing it. Yeah, once because you want to enjoy life. Uh, two, two, the second reason will be the nocebo, the nocebo effect because. One problem, nocebo, placebo and nocebo. Yes. And, right. you know, people like me who paid a lot of attention to people like you, to experts like you, the problem we have is that if we are felt like normal people, we die just out of fear, you know, out of the... <laughs> Out of the nocebo effect, yes. we, we, we drop dead. You know, so th I'm terrified to go to a hospital because I know, oh, if they touch me, you know, th they're going to do this and this and this is bad. And other people are like very happy and maybe they have the placebo effect. I will have the, the opposite one. So, you know, I'm that's that's the main reason I, <laughs> I don't want to go to hospitals. Uh, so, yeah, okay. Nurse, hospitals are dangerous places. I mean, certainly if you're in a car accident, you want to go see a doctor and at the emergency room and not listen to one of my podcasts <laughs> <laughs> but um i think this is probably a better protocol for preventing chronic disease than you're going to get in the hospital where they're going to feed you junk food god yeah well that's that, that would we could make so many podcasts about that you know so basically yep. to sum up with the pork issue is it's even if acorn is high omega-6 content the fact that he's eating whatever he wants or whatever whatever he finds it finds and also the fact that he's exercising that should lower its uh, omega-6 content right yeah i wouldn't worry in the context of something like that i wouldn't i wouldn't even worry about it i mean you know the unhealthy pig is the pig that's in a cage or in a warehouse somewhere and they're feeding it you know, vitamin pills and corn mash and soybean oil to fatten it up. I mean, worry about that. That's an unhealthy animal. And, you know, anybody who's ever compared actually pastured pork to industrially fed pork, it's night and day. It's like it's not even the same animal. I mean, it's just so much tastier. Mm -hmm. And taste is a great guide. You know, he, we... we humans have taste is a great guide i think to the health of a food good food tastes better nutritious food tastes better right i mean i can taste the difference between industrial milk and organic milk and pastured milk you know and eat the stuff that tastes good to you right and you will as you start to train your palate and as you start to cut back on the junk food you'll find that you're more susceptible to feeling like crap when you eat it and it makes it easier and easier to eat it right once your body becomes adapted to a healthy diet yes because we we normalize feeling like crap and we we get right. used to it and then we 
lose our spider sense so so to speak you know like spider-man has this spider sense yes. when something goes wrong it's like ding, ding, my spider sense is telling me to you know but we 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 lost contact with that sense i'm uh, thank you very much Taker. i have so many more questions and so many more subjects i really hope you come back uh, and you know i would love to make it more specific because i've realized after talking to you that you know this is too huge and and maybe it would be a very good to really uh, quote it like make it very narrow for one specific subject and and you know but is there anything you want to say like something like okay this biohack we didn't talk about this or we didn't talk about something that you really think it's important or maybe you want to summarize like the three most important tips i would give myself 20 years back you know if, if i would have to summarize to compress it in three tips just three tips what would it be or uh i would just say that it's um it seems if you're looking at fixing your diet it seems intimidating it's not as hard as it seems initially you develop habits it gets easier and easier and easier and you start to feel better and better and better and you wind up becoming addicted to feeling good all the time and i mean i'm at the point now where we go you know we went out to dinner last night it's my wife's birthday this very nice expensive restaurant and my general experience now when i walk out of restaurants is I could have done that meal better at home and it would have been healthier and it would have been a hell of a lot cheaper and we would have had a better experience, right? Because I've developed these habits of fixing how to fix my diet and I know what to do. And it means you eat better, right? I mean, the whole key point of this is that you will eat better and you will enjoy what you are eating more and you will feel better all of the time. It is... I mean, I can't emphasize the difference in me now at 55 and me at 42 before I fix my diet. I am in so much better shape and feel so much better all the time. It's just night and day. It's unbelievable. That's that's a great message because you know you know the subject but you're also living it you're, you're living through it you you walk the walk you know you talk the talk you walk the walk so that's great Taker what for the Spanish audience what can what what can we do to be always in touch with you to know what you're doing what projects are you in right now because I've heard that you're in some very exciting projects so uh yeah i'm very active on twitter uh my twitter handle is at tucker goodrich i've got a somewhat neglected at the moment podcast going if you look on youtube i was going to um, ask you it's been a year Tucker. it's been a year since the last one yeah no i know i've got a bunch in the can that i need to put out um some of them are pretty cool but uh unfortunately we're in the middle of moving right now so that has taken up a lot of mental real estate. Um, so 
you know, those people will find helpful, I think, um, including the interview I did with my current doctor, um, uh, Josh Durham, who has a lot of interesting things about doing this sort of stuff to say with uh, doing this sort of stuff with his patients. I'm actually having dinner with him tonight, so hopefully we'll come up with another episode out of that. Um, and I'm involved in two companies. Um, the first is that I'll mention is Zero Acre Farms. They are producing a seed oil replacement that is very low in linoleic acid and high in oleic acid. It's made by fermentation, um, wow. culturing fats wow. sim from carbohydrates, similar to what a cow does in its gut. It's in um, that I think is an absolutely phenomenal product because if we're going to figure out how to feed the world in a healthy way, we need that product. 21% um, of our calories in the United States come from seed oils. And we don't, we can't stop eating those 21% of our calories tomorrow. If we all do it together, it'll be a catastrophe. So we need an alternative and they're making the alternative. Um, and the other one is uh, the CD app, S-E-E-D-Y. Um, and it's cdapp.com and that is under development and it's going to be a prod product to help people find low omega-6 fats in the supermarkets and you know ultimately in restaurants to direct people away from the bad fats and towards the good fats because it can be not everybody goes through the supermarket reading all the labels the way i do and probably not everyone should um so we're trying to make that process easier for everybody so that'll that'll be released shortly. Well, I'm happy to see that you're so active and so full of projects and also very happy to know that your channel, your YouTube channel is still on and that you haven't abandoned it because I really enjoyed it and I invite everybody to to join it. Is there anything you want to say to to say goodbye to your Spanish fans which you will have many now? No, you know, my, my Spanish-speaking fans, I mean, yeah, of course, not just Spain. My, my stepbrother lives in Costa Rica, and I went down and visited him once and encountered their motto for life, Pura Vida. And I think that is just a wonderful mindset, right? And I think that really correlates with everything that we've been talking about here is living a pure life and a good life. And that's how you get enjoyment out of life. I've always really loved that motto. I didn't buy the t-shirt, but it's, it's always in my mind. I think it's a great idea because we have to make the most of life because after all, we only live how many times we live Tiger. Right. How many? Only once you only no, get one no, shot. Make you wrong. We only live twice before and after discovering Netkaifen. That's something uh, I wrote to all my guests. I had to do okay. it. In English, doesn't work that well, but it's, it's a long story. Okay, it's been a pleasure. Please, please, please come back one day because I have so many things on, on the, you know, there waiting for you. And it's been a pleasure. Take care. Mario, this is, it's, it's been great. This is one of my favorite conversations I've ever had on a podcast. This is really, it's always a pleasure talking to somebody who's so knowledgeable about this stuff and is asking me all the right questions is just phenomenal. 
Thank you very much. Thank you. Big hug. Likewise.